welcome. What's good? Today is August 8th, and you're listening to Ascension Run, a podcast about roguelike games and strategy. My name is Tone, and I will be your host. You may know me from the Tone Hack YouTube and Twitch channels. Today, I will be joined by Aluxadream, uh, the current NetHack speedrun world record holder, and he recently streamed NetHack with uh, the ESA 2021 Summer uh, Speedrun Marathon, which we'll be talking about later. Welcome, Luxadream. Hello. I'm glad glad for you to have me. Uh, yeah, I play NetHack. I'm a pretty generally a roguelike enthusiast, but not quite as eclectic as Tone over here. But I think I think it'll be fun. Me too. Very happy to have you here for our first episode. Um, so this is the first episode of the show, and I don't want to talk about that too much. I think we'll just get into the show here, and uh, you listeners will kind of see what the show is about as we go. Um, but this has been something that's been um, in my my brain just just growing for over a year now. It's it's like a very long term project for me, and um, I'm very excited to to get this out there and get it started. The, the reason it's happening right now is that I wanted to talk about this ESA run and some other stuff that's been going on. And honestly, I work pretty well, like under pressure with something like this. So just having a good reason and then setting a deadline here with, with uh, Luxury to talk about this kind of made me just actually like start putting together all the other things. So I've just been like doing all kinds of stuff over the past like week or two, just to, like get this started. There's so much like infrastructure. Um, you have to get like your your podcasting hosts and everything. And again, I'm not going to belabor with all the details, but um, I've been doing a lot on it the past week and I haven't slept a lot the past couple of days uh, as I've been like pulling all this together. Um, but with that said, um, I do have a, a grand scheme and idea of like how this show is going to be and how I want it to be. But as with all of my projects for my streams and my YouTube videos, to all the other content I do, um, I like to let this stuff evolve naturally and just kind of like fill the void that it, it needs to and that like works best for it. So um, things are going to be left open-ended and flexible, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And along with that, um, the people who are listening and the guests that I have on this show will have a big impact on how it grows as well and have an imprint on it in the long run. So um, I definitely want to get the feedback from you guys and you know just see how things evolve and how they grow. So with that in mind, um, I'd love to get listener participation on the show in the form of questions, comments, feedback, so we can um, bring into the show and talk about and discuss. Uh, right now, the best way to do that will be if you go to tonehack.net slash contact, uh, you'll get a contact form that'll get emailed to me. I'll get, um, I have like emails set up, but they're not like fully set up. So we'll, I'll introduce those later. But for now, that's going to be the best way. Also, there should be comments on the uh website posts for the podcast so you'll be able to leave a message there but i'd love to get some interaction from you guys and see how everything's going um as far as supporting the show because it's the first episode and we'll like if we're going to keep doing this it needs to just like people just need to like know it exists and listen to it um you know all the normal stuff for podcasts is like rating and reviewing it on itunes and uh, whatever like you're listening to it through uh, i know you've probably heard that millions of times if you've listened to podcasts um, that should be helpful. Um, well, it'll be very helpful and I'll appreciate the heck out of it, but I don't think this is the kind of podcast that's going to be charting on iTunes or anything. It's kind of niche. So, um, the other big thing that's going to help right now is if you can just share it with people who want to listen to it. So if you have friends, communities, like anywhere else that you can share this with and just tell people about it, and if you think they'll enjoy it, um, that'll be a big help. So, um, yeah, just sending it to friends, like any places on Reddit through discords, whoever, whatever places people who might want to listen to it. 
Um, so with that out of the way, uh, we're going to move on to the roguelike news. Um, just cover some of the things that have happened recently. So the the first, the biggest thing that's happened uh, very recently here is Jupiter Hell has released um, into 1.0. It's full release on Steam, which is really exciting. Uh, we're going to cover this in depth later, so I think we'll pass over this for now. I know Luxadream has been playing as well, which I'm excited to get into this discussion with him, but we'll cover that a bit later. Uh, the next thing would be uh, Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup has its 0.27 release. They're calling it the Cursed Flame, um, and they have their normal release tournament. They do these about twice a year. So the, the big changes here are the they added a genie species, which is like the, uh, the race in DCSS. Um, and they sound pretty interesting. They can cast spells with hit points instead of uh, their mana points. And they they don't learn spells from reading spell books like you normally do. Um, they gain them randomly when leveling. And I don't know how that works in practice, but it sounds pretty interesting. Um, have you had any interaction with those Luxadream? No, I haven't. I haven't actually tried it. I haven't played too much uh, Crawl, actually, because... Um... I played three. I played three games for the tournament, and uh, I haven't really been getting into it, to be honest. Yeah, I'd like to try the genie because uh, crawl has a lot of spells. So I don't know if you could just like how often you just end up with a lot of spells you don't want to use. But I also love the idea in roguelikes of being forced to adapt to things and work with what you get, and that sounds like a really cool way to to have that in the game. It sounds like something similar to another like mechanic in the game called a spirit shield, where um, your health and man- you know, your whenever you take damage, it also draws from your uh, mana pool instead. But this is a little bit more extreme. Yeah, that's a great observation, actually. And and spirit shield is can be really good on the, like the non casters who don't use their their mana anyways, right? Right, and it can be good on casters too because they have a lot of mana and they they'd like to take a they'd like to take a bit more of a hit. Because like that can be like plus twenty or plus thirty percent HP, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely non negligible. Um, yeah, crawl has a lot of fun fun mechanics in it. I don't, I don't play it enough, uh, but I enjoy the game. Um, they also added a, like a bunch of new spells. It looked like, and they like replaced some spells with like similar counterparts as just kind of like a balancing thing. And they added spellbooks. Well, it always had spellbooks, but now spellbooks are more common and they contain less spells, which I, I kind of like that for just like reducing the potential variance in how spells would work instead of like relatively rarely finding a spellbook and like getting a ton of spells at once. I think it sounds good to have them distributed like more evenly. Uh, cursed items were removed from the game, which seems fine to me i feel like in crawl you generally ended up with like a ton of removed curse scrolls like at a pretty early stage in the game and it kind of didn't matter but as a side effect of that there is a deity in crawl and um your your di- your deity or like god choice is like a huge part of your how your character plays and your build in crawl um, they have a, a lot of abilities that they grant you and like impact your game greatly so there's one called ashen zari and how they worked before is they added a new effect to the remove curse scroll where you can actually curse items that you're using. And they basically um, gave you like more benefits as you had more curse items equipped. Um, so now that curse uh, remove curse scrolls are gone and curse items don't exist, this changed a bit. So um, actually Angani um, is a crawl player I know was talking to me about this yesterday and they, they gave me a, a really 
good rundown of it. And it, I think I like the the rework here. So basically, um, so, so there aren't cursed items, but Ashen Zari now will curse items for you. And I, I, I assume it's like randomly or with piety as you're gaining that. And you get a benefit whenever you curse an item. And something that's new here is you can't remove curse items at all, essentially. There is a another god ability that will let you remove them, but then the item is gone forever. So it's this like high risk, not, not even high risk, but it's like it, it makes puts a lot of weight on that decision. Um, and I, I, I like things in that context. It's a little bit strange, though. Like, you know, you think of like every other hack, like it has cursed items. Heck, even Cogmind has cursed items. It's not even a fantasy roguelike. So I know they were in a big deal. I know they were in a big deal in Crawl, but they're pretty much uh, omnipresent. So to see them to see them gone is a little bit jarring. Yeah, I feel like there's two directions you can go with something like that. And like you basically have a, a mechanic here that isn't working or like isn't um, consequential. And you could either do what they did here and just say, well, let's just remove it from the game. We have plenty of other content that matters in the game. Um, or like what a lot of other games might do is change that mechanic to make it more consequential. Um, and that's probably something you do see um, since you just mentioned Cogmind. Um, I think that's a, the design philosophy that they go with a lot is like don't really remove things and like change them. And uh, we've both played uh, Brogue too. So curses are pretty consequential in Brogue because of how rare a remove curses. It manages to be relevant throughout the entire game pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I love Brogue, and I've played a, a lot of it at this point. I really picked it up again this year. And and yeah, remove curse scrolls are very rare in that game. And um, early on, if you equip a cursed item, it's you, you probably like lose the game <laughs> in a lot of cases. It can be really punishing. And, and there's there can be this breakpoint in games. Um, you, you get a lot of resources to know if items are cursed, but sometimes you don't get those. And Every game shouldn't be like that, but when they are, like those are some of my most fun games at times because you have to make some like really tough decisions about do I wear this even though it might be cursed and I won't have a way to deal with it or do I wait? Um, and yeah, there, there's a lot of um, cool design space and cursed items for sure. Um, some of the other stuff that Ash and Zari does now is um, they had this scrying ability that basically just like let you see the the map around you and it used to be an active ability um, now it's a, a passive ability that grows as your uh, piety with your your god grows and it but it has a smaller radius i like that um i don't think i had a lot of experience with ashenzari before so i don't know how it was in practice but you know to have something passive instead of like an ability that you might end up using constantly or whatever seems like a a nice tweak there it's just kind of generally easier on the player um, less headspace for you to be like forgetting to use an ability or like having to remember you need to use it or whatever. Yeah. I think old Ash and Zari was also uh, pretty strong because um, it had, uh, it had what's equivalent to like net hack warning. So you would see, um, you would see like uh, red, you would see like red, yellow and like uh, gray monsters, I guess. So like the danger levels of the different monsters and you would, there's no, there's no like potion of monster detection and crawl. So that information is really, really valuable. Yeah, and in, in general, in, in crawl, I think that's just more important because it's pretty rare in NetHack that a monster like shows up that'll <laughs> just like end your run. But in crawl, like you can get like a spellcaster that can do like a ton of damage um, potentially. And so, like um, in crawl, you're essentially running into these scenarios where it's like, all right, how do I get out of this scenario or like fix it? Because if I mess around here, I could probably die pretty quickly. 
Um, so getting yeah, that so with Ashinzara, you'd see like there's an elite over there. Like I'm just going, I'm mean, unique, sorry. And then I'm just going to walk around and avoid. I'm just going to walk around and avoid it with Ashinzari, Whereas every other god would probably just blunder into the room and then have to use escape items and probably get killed. Maybe get killed after that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I always like stuff like that in games. Like um, like Cogmind has like sensors and terrain scanning, which let you know intel of stuff around you and. Baroque has like the ring of clairvoyance, which is like it's it's not like a sexy ring, but it's like a really strong one to have, especially with how Brogue handles like secret rooms and stuff. I think I got plus ten on that before. That was pretty sexy. I that that is sexy. Um, <laughs> I would. I, I'm just waiting till the the time I can get like a, a huge clairvoyance run. I wanna I wanna have some fun with that, especially with how stealth works in Brogue. I think that could be a, a really fun way to play. Um. Another thing that Ash and Zara used to do is they could like affect your your skills um, and crawl like how you allocate your skill points is like a really important part of the game and how you build your character. And they had this thing where you can transfer skills previously, so that got changed. And now basically, when you're how I understand it is when you're offered curses um, or like as you like grow with that deity in that direction, that you basically get offered a chance to boost a group of skills. So that's kind of how they handle that is you just get like like improved skills through that um, instead of the skill transfer thing. I think that's similar to the the scrying thing is like not making that quite as active as a thing. Um, just kind of lowers like the overhead that the the player needs to be worried about. And like when are you putting when are you putting skill points into something that you're not using anyway? And then have to like transfer it into something more useful. That doesn't happen too often, does it? Yeah, it really doesn't. Um I guess some of the the times that that might happen in crawl from my experience is just with like magic schools if you end up with like another spell or something so you can like transfer to that if you just get like a like a really good end game spell or something but but yeah you you pretty much just put points in the spells that you or the skills that you want uh, one uh i don't know if it's a criticism or like one thing that was pointed out to me um that seemed interesting was that so in crawl there's a whole mutation system where you can get like mutations and they will um, give you just random uh, effects and basically passive abilities and they're either good or bad now some of them like like you can get horns and they will like remove your helmet slot Um, there's a lot of them that'll affect like what like equipment slots you have available so apparently if you get one of these mutations and it removes a slot that you had cursed item on from ashenzari it'll actually destroy it as if you removed it which seems pretty harsh Mutations are pretty harsh in general. Like you get in line of sight of something that malmutates, and suddenly your character is just permanently worse. And the only way to remove these, the only way to remove these debuffs would be to drink a potion of mutation. That's gambling in itself. You might get something worse. So, yeah, I've been incredibly frustrated by mutations in crawl before. Um, I had a, a run once where I I was in the slime pits. And um, I basically took a stare and I immediately got mutated by one of the the enemies down there. Um, And I think that was like a learning lesson for me is like that can happen. And I didn't appreciate how easily that could happen in that place in particular. Um, But so that's just kind of this precaution you have to take, even though it's like a relatively rare event. But like that, you just like come down a stair and don't get any recourse to it. But I got the mutation that gives you more mutations over time. And I just got like oh. every bad one. I got the one where scrolls take longer to read. I got the teleportitis that teleports you like next to enemies. I got like all this like terrible stuff. And it basically like ruined my game. Like I just like lost from that like one point. 
Um, it was pretty brutal. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'd have to play it to like make any like real judgments on this, but I feel like it almost makes sense since you're not like removing an item on your, by your own like will that you'll like, if it wasn't destroyed in that case would make sense. Um, and I don't think that could really be exploited either because like gambling with mutations to like unequip an item like that has like other adverse effects and it's a limited resource. So, um, it, it, that seems pretty harsh. <laughs> I think I think the general opinion of the new Ashen Sorry is that it's uh, pretty strong. And as a, um, I think someone in the Order of the Cockatrice chat posted like the win rates for different gods, and Ashen Sorry is actually up there now. So that means that uh, people are liking it for one reason or another. So I don't think this bothers uh, them too much. No, I, I think I think it was it was strong before. It seemed like or it seemed like a fun choice before. And if it's strong now, then I I, I think this overhaul looks pretty good in general. Um, I, I should really play a game and and pick Ashen Sorry. And, and see how it plays. It sounds like a lot of fun changes here. Um, so every time the the DCSS dev team releases a new update, they do a tournament. So this one will be running until the 15th. Um, I like how they do it like two weeks, but they cover like three weekends. So it's like a little bit over two weeks. Um, it seems like a that the month long like tournaments that like the NetHack community does like almost feel too long sometimes. So this is like a nice, sweet um, little tournament how they do those. No, and that hack is a much longer game. Uh, usually, people take like I, I I did the median for like net hack games. It's much much longer than call. People take like eighteen and a, the median was eighteen and a half hours. So that's, that's like true. A, mm-hmm. It's like two. That's like three three times longer than probably three times longer than your average call game. Yeah, and most people aren't going to be playing like the game that whole time. So if if the net hack tournament lasts a month, you might spend four weekends playing and get like four good games in, and that's still like a lot of your free time. <laughs> Uh, that's all I got on crawl here. Um, so some other news. We'll spend a little bit less time with these, but Angband um, version four point two point three was released, which it's it's always fun seeing a game like Angband that has such a long history getting an update. Um, this one doesn't have didn't seem like a lot of stuff. Um, just to cover through the the highlights that I saw, um, it's basically um, a bunch of general improvements and balance fixes, and then considerable bug fixing. And um, I saw one that caught my eye. It said improvements to dungeon generation. Then it just said especially robustness, <laughs> which is like it's that's like specific and vague at the same time. Like I'm just like trying to imagine what robustness means in that regard. Oh, I just thought uh, that was funny. non-broken, non-broken dungeons. That's what it means to me, I guess. Yeah. So I, I should I should play around and just see how how robust the dungeons are now. <laughs> The dungeons have more HP. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, also, uh, their website got moved. It's now hosted at their GitHub on like a, a GitHub web hosting, however that works. Um, so that's uh, just an important note there. Um, yeah, it's, it's fun that uh, NetHack and uh, Angban are still both alive and well. Yeah, it, it really is because they're such like old games, you know, um, Angband, I was looking through the release history cause I, I tried playing Angband a year or two ago and it had just had like a recent release. Um, but it's gotten like a release like every year pretty much. So it's, it's just cool to see these games going and, um, that their people are committed to making them better and improving them. That's more often than that hack. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The, the, the job of a roguelike is never done. That is so true. Um, in other news, um, Unexplored 2, which is a non-traditional roguelike game. Um, a lot of people 
would probably be familiar with Unexplored One, which is a you know a, a real time well, it's actually like free pause um, roguelike game that uh, uh, really maps really well to traditional roguelikes, which is what I think a lot of people like about it. Um, it's heavily influenced by like Brogue, um, so people that like Brogue should check it out. But Unexplored Two is something that I got I got stuck in a, a rabbit hole in, and I ended up playing it for like five or six weeks <laughs> um, about two months ago, and I had a blast with it. It's it's in early access, and it's it's still like really early in development. There's a lot of like bugs and things going on, but every update that comes out is just like it, they're not like really like sexy updates, but it's like hey, they're fixing all these bugs, like all these balance fixes, like the player experience is being improved. Like these are the exact kind of updates that I love to see in early access. Um, so the the dev team basically took like a two to three month, like or two to three week, I mean, uh, like summer break. And they just got back recently. So in the past like week and a half, there's been like three like significant updates. And uh, that's just been really cool to see. And um, I guess at the towards the end of this month, they're going to do like a an actual like big content update. The last one they did was this huge overhaul of items. And there's like um, you get sigils in that game of like different elements. You can combine them on items to like get magical effects. So they added like hundreds of these magical effects based on these combinations of sigils. And um, they added like item properties. So there's like a ton of variety into like how things it was like a huge, huge update. Um, as far as like content goes, like just beyond like these balance fixes and bug fixes and stuff. So it looks like we have something, another update like that to look forward to towards the end of the month, which I will be excited about. Uh, the dev team also had a, a dev stream early this week. Um, I think they announced it like on the day that they did it and they just kind of streamed on their discord and um, I didn't get to watch it, unfortunately, but uh they said the next one that they will do on Twitch so that there will be like easier way to record VODs and have that available for people afterwards. And um, I'm really excited to, to check out that stuff because the the dev team there is like they really know what they're doing and they really think things out. And like on the on the, the lead dev uh, Joris on their uh, blog, they wrote like a articles about their dungeon generation and about this mechanic that they added, um, which are called fortune tests which are kind of how they handle dice rolls for things that don't work great in real time, like social interactions and picking locks and stuff. Um, and it was like a really like great article to read. I can, I can link that in the the show notes um, and I highly recommend it. So they just like really know what they're doing. And um, I, I just like love listening to their thought process and how they're approaching issues and how they're handling them. And um, I, I'm looking forward to catching one of those in the future. Um, and just today I saw Ponbarian, which is a chess-like, roguelike puzzle game. Um, it seems primarily a, a puzzle game, that, more than a roguelike, but it was first made for 70 RL 2019. And it was pretty popular. Um, it's going to get released in September, and it's just got a, sub a substantial new demo um, release on Steam. So um, if people have been following that at all during the last couple of years or um, want to check it out, there's, there's a, a new demo on Steam, so you can check that out. I think a lot of people who are into roguelikes will enjoy that. Oh, and there was um, also a big event recently in the, the roguelike speedrunning world that we will definitely be getting to later. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so uh, yeah, let's talk about what kind of games we've been playing lately, um, roguelikes in particular. So I think the, the big one here that we want to talk about and we delayed from the news is Jupiter Hell. Yep, I actually picked this up 
in preparation in preparation for this podcast, kind of. I picked it up a couple of days ago. It looked really cool when I saw it in the trailer, so that was enough for me. Yeah, so Luxa Dream's just been playing um, for the first time the past uh, day, or a couple of days, so I'm really excited to get his uh, impressions on it. But just to give everyone um, the background on it, people are probably familiar with Doom the Roguelike. This is the spiritual successor of that. So it's kind of got a lot of uh, similar mechanics and things going on. It's the same developer and all that. So uh, it's a traditional roguelike, turn-based and all that good stuff that we love. It's set in a 90s-flavored science fiction universe. You play as a space marine fighting demonic forces on the moons of Jupiter. And it's after your shuttle gets shot down by your friendly defense systems. You crash at one of the bases wondering what's going on. Um, And then all hell breaks loose. Um, So some of the cool things that this does is... uh, truly unique it has 3d graphics and animations and a physics engine and it's still turn-based but it doesn't look like it and the developers have a hell of a time trying to convince some people that it is truly (laughs) turn-based because of how it handles these animations and just how how much it looks like an action game it also has voice acting um, and actually by mark Muir, who is known for voicing commander shepherd in the mass effect trilogy Um, and he plays this like over the top foul-mouthed space marine protagonist like along the lines of like a, a Duke Nukem style. Um, it's kind of hilarious um, to see. There's it's, definitely no other roguelike that has that kind of flavor. Yeah, it's 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 great. Just this like 90s like, you know, kind of pulp style. Like, I, I, I just I just love it. This The whole aesthetic is great. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to, I just want to hear your thoughts on it, Luxadream, before I get into anything else about it. Um, how, how have you been enjoying it? Like, what, what thoughts have you had on it? Um, so I haven't got, I, I made it most of the way through the game on hard. So that's, that's going to be like my perspective, my perspective from here, but I really, I really enjoyed it. I'm normally not into like, uh, like I said, it's a very different flavor from roguelikes. Usually I only play like fantasy roguelikes. So this is kind of a little bit out of my element per se, but, um, there are a lot of things that I think it, I think it does right. And I, one thing about it, you said, like, it look really looks like an action game, but it plays very much like any other, like, traditional roguelike that you might be familiar with. Like, if you run around, if you run around and just try to, like, shoot, shoot pretty much any demon or soldier that you see, you're going to die very, very quickly. So that, that much is, that much is true. And I think, uh, Tone, you're playing it on a much uh, higher difficulty than, you're playing it on a higher difficulty than me, so that's probably doubly true. I think this game is very, very challenging. Yeah, it really is, which I was surprised because, like, um, on, like, the Reddit, like, mega thread on the Roguelike subreddit, like, I saw some criticism that the game was too easy, <laughs> and I've seen that in the reviews, and I, I don't know what game these guys are playing because, um, like, for instance, I had a, an experience yesterday where I actually had, like, a pretty OP build going on. I got this, like, unique, um, like, gun like really early that's like a late game weapon and i had a my character was rolling and i got into a situation i was definitely a tough situation but i had all the tools to like survive it like easily and i actually like i I just hit the wrong button it's stupid thing i do sometimes um we we all probably do it and i i moved instead of using one of my like abilities and i just died like instantly um and and that is rare like you're not going to run into like these like instant death situations but like that just shows like how tense some of these situations in the game are and like how you will get put in these like really like tactically like deep situations where you do have to think through your moves and uh, make sure you make the right move and um yeah um if people are playing this like an action game i don't i don't know how they're surviving (laughs) 
Yeah, I definitely got that brogue feel from it. You know how in like deeper and deeper in brogue, you're getting like things like dragons and tentacled horrors, and a lot of times you can't fight them one on one. You have to like skirt around and avoid them. And I was I was playing a stealth build. I was only like level ten, level. I was only level ten going into um, the final moon, uh, Dante, and um, yeah, and uh, there are a lot of monsters. There are a lot of uh, monsters here that I couldn't deal with, like warlocks or sentries and just like crazy stuff that I was trying to kite around and fight. And I actually ended up getting stuck behind some of them and tried to engage stupidly. And that's how I ended up dying from uh, over half of my health, too. So it's definitely a really dangerous game, not just like a not just like a shoot 'em up. Yeah, that's a great comp there, actually, um, with how they handle the enemies in, in Brogue and in this. Like, uh, you know, in a game of NetHack, you'll run into... 90% of the enemies you just don't even think about. You just bump into them to kill them. Um, but in, in Brogue, every enemy, like, you have to think about. And I think pretty much every encounter in this game you have to think about as well. Um, mm-hmm. You only have limited health, and enemies generally do, like, a pretty good amount of damage. So you start with 100 health, and you don't really get a lot of opportunities to raise it much higher than that. And uh, you, you get enemies that have, like, you know, sniper rifles and stuff, and they'll do... 20 plus damage with one shot so you really got to think through that stuff and if you know that's it's a precious resource you don't passively regain health um, which is a something different than a lot of roguelikes um and it it has a huge effect on how you play the game and approach it uh so yeah the pain mechanic in the game is actually really interesting too because it means like whenever you're whenever you're in a good situation things are probably fine but things things can go south very very quickly because like whenever you're whenever you get hit your chance to hit enemies goes down and you have to retreat for a while or or have like some resource on hand to try and get rid of it yeah i'm glad you brought that up because that is like a really important mechanic in a game and a, a very consequential one so um, yeah, as you take damage, you basically start gaining this this pain modifier, and it just reduces your to hit chance. And I mean, once you're at like minus twenty percent, like you're definitely going to like be feeling that. But it can get like minus like eighty. <laughs> it gets really bad. Um, and you can like heal and like use consumables to fix that, or you can like retreat um, if as long as you can avoid like the the combat or like getting hit more while you're retreating. Um, and you can like just it'll go away over time. But if you're in a bad situation, like you can't just fight your way out of it sometimes you can get into a place where you're just like not effective in combat other things i really like about the game um they they do a lot just to remove like tedium from the game which is something that a lot of roguelikes do have to some extent um like just tedious strategies and such so the the way i when when it's really like kind of clicked for me and I, i really like appreciated this is the there's a scout class and each uh, class has a, a class resource, and this one uses energy, and you basically can use that to proc your, your class ability, and the scout gets to go into stealth, and they recharge it by opening chest. And I was like, okay, so if I'm maxed on my class resource, then I don't want to open chest until I use that so I can regain it. So I'm going to like pass it chest and go through this room. Um, use stealth to deal with some enemies and come back and open it. And then I read the rest of the description. It says any any uh, class resource you gain will go above your maximum until the next level, and then it resets to your maximum if you're higher than it. And I just thought that was like such a brilliant way to handle that because now I don't have to think about that at all. I don't have to min-max it. I don't have to backtrack to deal with it. I can just open all my chests, and I don't have any downsides to that. I don't have to worry about wasting my my class resource. It just gets overfilled, and then I can use it later, and it's 
pretty much the same situation, but I don't have to go through that tedium. And they apply that to a lot of the game. I do like that. Um, I think for for Marine though, they do they they still get the same like overcharging that a scout and a technician do because um, it seems a little bit it seems a little bit weird to me that um, that those two get it, but that killing monsters you don't get any overcharge there. I think you're right that they don't. Um, I haven't played the Marine since I first played this about two months ago. And then I just started, I've been checking out the new classes um, as I got back into it. And you're probably right about that. And I don't have as much of a recollection to like what the flow of that run was like to really um, comment too well on, on why they might not have done it like that. Um, I guess the one difference is that you're kind of like, force to fight enemies you kind of have less of an agency to decide to just like skip <laughs> fighting an enemy um although you can try to like min max that a bit that's that's a that's a good point and i i need to play the marine again with that in mind and see how that feels mm. oh one other thing that i really liked that reduces tedium is in a lot of other roguelikes for example net hack which is i guess that's my main roguelike uh whenever you, you there are a lot of branches to the main dungeon so you would go down the branch you would complete the branch and then you would walk up out of the empty branch and in jupiter hell it doesn't do that whenever you enter a branch you start and then you go down a few levels you start off like where you would have gone if you had just gone down the main dungeon so it essentially skips that part of the main dungeon and like replaces it with the branch and you still have like you still have choices on where you want to go obviously because they tell you on the ever on like the second level i think there's a terminal and they tell you like which branches are in which levels and you can decide where you want to go from there so i thought that i thought that was really cool i still don't know what all the branches do as like a new player but i feel like if you're an experienced player you can probably make some pretty smart choices there yeah i like that a lot too yeah cause so basically you're going there, there's there's four moons and you can think of them as just like worlds or biomes or like acts in the game and you just go through each one of them sequentially and um, each one has like around six levels and you can either just go to the next level or take the branch. And then there's a different branch that comes off of each level. And the, the order of those is randomized. And then you get like, you, you, you can access like terminals and you get like, you, you like read people's like emails and stuff. And those give you like tips. Like you might find like a, a good gun in this branch or a, a good armor in this one. Or this one might have some level effect, which the game has. Like it might be dark on the level or it might be like infested with enemies or something. Um, so you can like make decisions on what branch you want to go to just based on that. Um, but yeah, like once you pick a branch, it doesn't actually change how many levels you end up doing. You just like return to the the last level essentially of that moon uh, when you finish it. So I, I thought that was pretty cool as well. Um, and I, I like that. So you, you, you're not incentivized to like do every branch. If they add a lot of branches, you just like do one per world pretty much. Um, and you move on and it just kind of keeps the game moving forward. And I, I like that. And this game does have, um, it's like Cogmine does this as well. You, you don't backtrack through the stairs. Like once you go to the next level, like you don't go back, you like, you just deal with levels one at a time. And I, I like that a lot. Um, in some of these like more streamlined roguelikes. So I think Jupiter hell has some really cool branch rewards too. Like, um, you know, uh, Valhalla and in, in the first in uh, Callisto, right? The mm-hmm. first uh, moon. So I, I have completed it for the first time last night and it's really awesome to complete the branch and then walk through the last two levels and there's nothing there because you've shut off security. Oh, is that how that works? I've seen those emails and like, I haven't like fully pointed together, like how you piece some of these things together. That's so cool. I haven't seen that one yet. 
Yeah, so at the at the end of Valhalla, if you choose to go through the whole branch, which you can nope out at any time, uh, there's like a huge boss room with some pretty powerful bots, and you can like sneak past them, or you can um, or you can kill them. They're they have a lo- they have a lot of hit points, so I, I, you can you'll take a lot of damage if you try to kill all of them. But if you if you make it through there and you activate the terminal for the rest of Callisto, there's no more security, and there are only like soldiers and grunts and stuff. And you get ex- you get a whole bunch of experience for doing that. You'll probably much like level up immediately. That's so cool. I haven't seen that yet. So oh, I can't wait to see what else is in a game like that. Because um, a lot of times you do just get like really good loot, but mixing things in like that as branch rewards like. It's so much cooler when you can you have decisions that are beyond just like let me get better loot and kill more enemies and get better loot and progressing like that. Like I love having choices like that. I can't wait to see uh, more like that. And and yeah, like you were saying, like I don't have that experience with branches either. But I think each actually I know like different branches will favor certain enemy types and certain reward types. So if you are an experienced player who knows how these branches work, um, if you know that like like a certain thing is like a problem for your build, then you can avoid those branches. Or if some other branch like your build is really favored for like a type of enemy, you can go to a branch that has more of those kinds of enemies. And if you know a certain branch like generates a certain kind of reward or loot or whatever, then you can go there if you think that'll benefit your build more than another branch. Um, so I think once like, I learn that stuff and know how that all works, I, I, that just adds like this other layer of depth to the game that I'll really enjoy as far as like long-term strategy and decision-making. I didn't realize that the lore emails that you were talking about actually betray like some, some of the features of the branch, like getting like specific weapons. So I'll have to read through that a little more carefully. I thought it was just all like useless fluff. Oh yeah. So And some of it is fluff, but it doesn't waste your time. And I I really love how this is implemented. So you can go to a terminal and you can access emails on that floor. And there will be a list of emails. Um, Some of them will be grayed out. And those are pure fluff. Uh, You don't have to read those. I generally just skip over them. They're they're fun to read. But if I'm just playing the game or whatever, I I don't always look at them. Um, But then some of them will be highlighted in orange. And those have information that, like, basically intel on your run. And then you can... Um, select them to copy them to your journal so you can access them at any time after that and then even within those emails um it'll highlight it's it's in like a like a light color like white or something it'll show what piece of information are telling you something that impacts your run so you don't even have to read like the whole like paragraph of the email or whatever you can just like skim through it and it'll say this branch this reward and kind of understand what's going on there so it's really easy to just like skim through these get some information and then make some decisions based on that mm-hmm. And yeah, we haven't even gotten to the point where we're shooting demons yet. We're still just talking about game mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, let's talk about that. Because um, something, so this game is like, it has a, a heavy focus on ranged combat, which is something that a lot of roguelikes don't have. Um, it's something that like Cogmind has that I think is like a big learning curve for people. So something that comes along with having a lot of enemies with ranged combat is that you can't use choke points as easily because like the standard fare for a roguelike is really, all right, let me walk into this door or choke point and then I'll fight guys one at a time. But if you open a door and there's a room full of enemies with guns, then they will just all shoot you from where they're standing. And even if you back up into the corridor, if they have line of sight on you, they will all keep shooting you from where they're standing. So it's hard to isolate an enemy to get those one-on-ones like that. Um, But what the game does is... It has a, a system where you can get cover, and cover is really significant. It I don't know the exact numbers, but like 
a huge reduction to your chance to like hit enemies or for enemies to hit you. So you need to like try and get into a position where you can be in cover and where the enemies aren't in cover. And then the way the line of sight is, everyone has the same line of sight. It's six tiles in the game. You can like pull enemies because once you leave their line of sight, they have to like follow you to get into a position where they can hurt you. So you can like manipulate enemy positioning using line of sight and um, like the geometry of the level to get to try and get yourself into a position where you have cover and the enemy doesn't or just other like favorable positions and the just like the whole chess match of that and the tactics of it i just find like really um really satisfying and enjoyable and it just like it just really makes you think and i i like that it's a lot more complicated than it looks too like you have all kinds of like boxes and barrels and things that are spread out across the floor and sometimes you have like multiple sources of cover it's kind of it's kind of not always obvious not always obvious like where the best place to fight is and i really do like that yeah and even like so i I played this for a while yesterday and i'm doing stuff where like okay i'm in a good position right now but i'm out of ammo and i need to like reload or like swap my weapon or like use a consumable so ideally i do that from another location so that like i don't allow the enemy like a free turn on me so i'm like okay i can move here and break line of sight from them and that'll give me a few turns to like do whatever i need to do and like i i kept falling into this trap where i do that but then when the the enemy comes around the corner they suddenly have cover from the corner and then i'm in the open (laughs) and then it takes me like it's like so much harder to hit them when they're in cover so i spend like a lot of turns before i can hit them even though i only like needed one more hit so it would i would have been better off just letting them shoot me once from my position than getting a bunch of free actions to to reload and heal up or whatever and then have to like gun them down from cover um and it's a lot of that was not obvious um but like i keep running into those situations and then like i'm working on like internalizing that stuff and learning how it goes but the the whole chess match is really satisfying because you learn the patterns and you can just like if there's situations where you and your enemy have cover, but if you like move to the right, then they move to the left. All of a sudden, you have better cover, and they have no cover and stuff like that. Yeah, and that specific situation you were describing, like sometimes what I would do is I would move to break line of sight, and then I would move back to my position, and then they would get they would get one shot at me from cover, and then after that, I would I would have like my turns taken already to reload and heal or do whatever so like you have to go you have to like go back to that you have to like go back to that spot and then like take fire from it from them and even if like even if they only have like 20 or 30 percent chance to hit you i don't know what their two hit is it still it still can be like a pretty uh, frustrating if one of them gets a hit on you but i think your chances are a lot better that way yeah and it's it's not obvious at first which is like why i kept falling in that trap it's like okay i don't want to get shot while i'm spending this action that's not killing them slowly move and i'm like oh now my positioning is like ruined and I've given them ground and I have to, to deal with that. And just the way the geometry of the levels are, there's columns, there's like rooms and walls and corners. And then there's just like other terrain, which is like destructible. So you can like use it, but then like it'll break and then you'll have no cover and you might have to like spend time retreating. It's just, it's just really satisfying to, to play in this. Like it's really like a chess match in a lot of ways. It's just very tactical and, and good. Um, so that's something I really enjoy about the game. Um, uh, another thing that I noticed when I was playing last week, um, I've been playing this, I played this last week and then this week. Um, otherwise, I had played about two months ago, um, and then I got stuck on that Unexplored 2 binge I hadn't played in a while. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I noticed there's like a certain like ammo scarcity, and it at one point it gave me this like real feeling about like, that you like survival and like a real FPS that you get where like, if you have like a good weapon, but no ammo and 
I'm having to make decisions based on that. And, and ammo is actually really hard to carry around because you have a limited inventory. Um, so it's often competing for space with like really valuable resources. And then you can only carry three guns by default. Actually, the scout only gets two. Um, there's a skill that gives you like one more slot. Um, so you can't always just like switch to another gun that like has more ammo. And even if it does, like you have to like commit an inventory slot like that. So that whole part of the game, I was actually pretty interesting too. Uh, it depends on the kind of ammo that you collect. There's like different kinds of ammo in the game. And if you're, if you're using like something like a nine millimeter, that uses like nine millimeter ammo, you're probably never going to run out, but it's not super strong either. That's true. And like my, the, the run I played last week, and I actually uploaded this run to YouTube. I found this gun early on that was like a, an insanely powerful SMG. And, it, but it had like a rare ammo type. And the, the developer was actually watching me and he warned me of it. But I was like, okay, I'm going to take like all the skills that give me like more ammo um, so I can like make this thing work. And we're going to build around it. I was like, this is like a, a cool weapon. I'm just going to commit my run to it and build around it and see what happens. Because it really did have like end game power. And well, what kind of ammo? What kind of ammo did it have? I'm curious. Uh, Forty four ammo. Oh yeah, that's that's pretty hard. That's pretty hard to find. Yeah, you can in uh, Dante Station. I found a crafting station that you could craft like entire inventory slots of armor. So you could craft like you could craft like 100, 100 ammo for that if you got that far. Yeah, and um, it's an SMG, so it uses four shots per volley or per per round. Oh gosh, <laughs> yeah, you're not you're, you're that's gonna eat through that's gonna eat through ammo so fast. You're gonna be gone after like two levels. Yeah, it was brutal, and and even even with that forty four ammo, if you have a lot of it, 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 you only get fifty per inventory slot. So it's like so hard to carry like a lot. Um, so in the, I actually found that gun again on the run I was playing yesterday, and I got I was like, nope, nope, nope. Not falling for this again. I, like I almost didn't even pick it up, but then I was like, "Well, I can use this as like a secondary weapon and just not build around it because it is really strong." But at one point, I found one of those crafting stations you were just talking about. So I crafted like two hundred bullets for it, and um, it was the exit to Europa, the second moon, and it was the the last branch, which is like if you skip all the branches and then take the bran- the last one, it's like a special level, which is like a little. A little bit harder and a little bit more reward, I think. Oh, really? That's interesting. Rewarding you for not taking any branches. Yeah, I've, I've been enjoying going into them and seeing seeing how they are, but I need to check out the other branches still too. But um, I actually was this one's called the Pit, and I was in that last week, and I knew how hard it was. So I was like, I'm just going to use this gun the whole time because it works really well against the, like the melee enemies that are here because like a close range SMG that just like murders things that are near near you. So I just like like created like a ton of ammo and then just went in there and I, I went through like all 200 bullets, but I like cleared it without taking like any damage, and that was just so satisfying. And actually, that's like the last area of that moon. The next moon, you start getting like energy weapons, so you like just stop seeing a lot of ammo like that altogether. So I actually literally just dropped the weapon after that too. Instead of just trying to like build around it too much, um, and that that was just like really interesting dynamic um, with the ammo and like the weapon and like okay, this is like a good weapon, but it's going to be too hard to use later on, so I'm just going to have to ditch it and deal with something else that's weaker, but that I can actually like support. Oh, you're crazy for trying to build around that. Honestly, I don't know if I found 144 ammo throughout the entire game. <laughs> Dude, I thought it was going to work because so there's a scavenger skill, um, and we didn't even talk about the trait system yet, but uh, you get. The first level, um, it'll give you twenty percent towards the ammo of the weapon you're you're carrying or like like actually wielding at that point, um, and like rarer ammo, like you have to get more like levels in it. But um, this ammo type is on the first level, 
And then you can get three tiers, so it'll go up to like 60%. And basically, if you pick up any ammo type, it, type, it converts it to the ammo for the weapon you're carrying at that percentage. So I'm like, well, I can use any ammo, and I'll get 20, 40, 60%, depending on how leveled I have this, and that should be plenty. It was not. And I was having this issue, so I had like no ammo, so I was like not able to fight things, and I'm like just you know trying to deal with enemies in like weird ways or with like like bad weapons that I'm carrying otherwise. And then I'm because uh, I'm converting all the ammo into this good ammo, so I don't have ammo for my other weapons. And then I'm in meanwhile, I'm investing all of my skills into or my skill points into a skill that just gives me ammo for the gun I'm using. I still don't have enough ammo, so it's all this wasted skill points. And in this game, like the traits are powerful, like every skill point is really significant. So, like, at, at the end, I had like three plus like skill points invested in this gun that I can't even use. and the, the decrease in my power level was just like so apparent from that and I suffered. Um, it was a fun experience all around, but <laughs> I, I know I know better now. And, um, you know, I like I said, the the other run where I found that gun again, I actually like use it in a perfect way. So I definitely learned from that. And um, just like how the ammo economy in the game works is kind of interesting with that. Oh, that would be pretty cool, actually, to find to use that skill, something like rockets. <laughs> Yeah, you can. So I, that's I haven't used rocket launchers enough, um, but uh, I, I want to use those more because they seem really powerful. And for some reason, like I remember my first game, I carried like a, an exotic one around, and I just like never used it just because like I didn't have a lot of ammo for it, and it seemed like situational, um, and it just felt like a dead slot because I wasn't using it. Um, but so I ended up like dropping it without really using it. But I really should have just like used it instead of like getting rid of it, um, and. It's interesting. I I was asking on my stream yesterday. I was like, I bet you like this swap harness, which lets you swap to the weapon like at a greatly reduced um, like swap speed, like pretty much for free, like action. Um, on a, I was like, get, putting this mod on a rocket launcher is probably really good. And the dev was like, yeah, that's that's like the meta. <laughs> so I need to like <laughs> really? try that and see how it is, especially because like I, where I've been having trouble is in like the third area. And, like, you get these, like, rooms full of, like, strong enemies. I think, like, swapping to a rocket and taking advantage of that would probably, like, clear out those rooms, like, a lot better. And and then you can, like, switch, swap back to your other weapon and, you know, deal with it in a much better position. Um, what else? We should talk about the, the traits uh, briefly here as well because we were just talking about them. Um, so there's three classes and there's, like, a basically, like, a skill tree and... I'm a sucker for skill trees. I love specking out characters like this. Um, and it's not like, okay, I'm going to go into this path and then you just like put points in that path and you get various upgrades. You actually have a list of skills and then there's like a prereq system, but it's like not that restrictive. Usually you just like have to take like one thing and then it'll unlock that. And usually it, you know, they're synergistic anyways. So you probably wanted that anyways. And um, you get one skill point per level and then I don't know what the ending level is. I forget what I was on my first game, but it's probably like between like 15 and 18, if I had to guess. Um, it sounded like you were like really underleveled on that stealth run where you were avoiding enemies. Oh, yeah. I was in the final area with like level 10. And I, I had to, I had to, I was like desperately killing weaker monsters just to try and level up because unlike Brogue, I, I don't know if we, I don't think we talked about this, about this yet, but unlike Brogue in this game, you have to, it's flavored after Doom, right? So it makes sense that you level up. And gain more skills by killing things. But in Brogue, like you can find scrolls of enchanting on the ground. That's how you improve your character, and so that allows stealth builds to be a lot more, a lot more viable per se. So I feel like that kind of drives the direction of like what your character should be able to do. Like even if they're really good at stealth, they should be able to kill 
They should be able to kill some of the trash mobs at least. Otherwise, they'll get surrounded and killed. Yeah, not attaching um, experience to killing monsters is what enables non-combat builds in games, and that's what Rogue does. That's what Combat do- or uh, Cogmine does, and those have like really, really, really great stealth gameplay. Um, and that's like a whole design topic, so we don't need to get too deep into that. But um, this game, it, it's 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 like it's it's a doom <laughs> inspired game. Like you're supposed to be fighting things. So it, it doesn't go in that direction. Um, stealth is more of like a, a repositioning tool or you can get sneak attacks, which are insanely strong. So sometimes I'll just stealth so I can get like extra damage. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, you basically want to be fighting things. Um, but the, so the skills, skills are like really powerful and important. I, I just really love how you can distribute them. And each skill point is very impactful. Like you don't like take like bad skills, um, or you'll be like, like wasting a skill. Like you'll feel it because they, they have a huge um, impact on just the numbers in the game and stuff. And I, I think that's good because your, your, your decisions have a, a big effect to them rather than like, you know, getting like, 10 skill points per level and just like dumping them in different stats or something like just you don't feel the impact of that i like how like you get like big changes with like one skill point that you get to put somewhere and define your build uh especially the master skills i think each of those might be a build in themselves i'm not sure yeah they they really are so each class has five master traits it can choose from and some of the other skills like are shared between classes but the master traits are actually are there any master traits that are shared there might be some um i don't i'm not sure actually but uh you basically Uh, i i I played a bit of marine i didn't think i saw any that overlapped okay yeah there might be some that do similar things but not quite overlap um but basically there's uh there's five master traits per build and you can only pick one master trait so usually that's i mean that is like very run and build defining and um those ones have a few more prereqs and then you can only get them at a at level eight and then you can only level them up after like a certain number of levels. Um, so you can't just like start taking them right away. Um, so like once you like know how you're playing and how the run's going, you get to like pick one basically assuming you've, you've planned ahead enough to like take the prereqs for it as well. Um, but those are essentially build defining. Um, they give you huge bonuses to, to whatever you're doing and just kind of change how, how you play the game like all together. Um, and, and that's something I like about this game. So there's three classes, there are so many play styles and like every time I end a run, I'm like so excited to like start a new one and just try something different. So I tried melee yesterday for the first time, which is just like not what you really expect from a, a you know, a, a doom styled like roguelike that's based on like focus on range combat. But I had this master trait called assassinate on the scout that like teleports you behind an enemy and you get a free attack on them. And then like you get like all these like damage bonuses. So I was basically like one shotting anyone whenever I did that. You can just like spam that thing and just like clear a whole room, just like teleporting behind guys and like um, attacking them. And the the 3D animations, especially if you do a lot of damage, you you get gibs and they just like explode with like all their like <laughs> limbs flying everywhere. This game actually has incredible ragdoll physics for like if you shoot someone with like a shotgun at point blank, like their body will go flying. It's so good. Uh, but yeah, it was like just so satisfying, like running around with a katana, like just just role-playing like a samurai or something and just slicing through demons and like possessed marines and stuff. Uh, But uh, yeah, so there's five uh, master traits for every, the three classes. And then I believe each one is intended to have like two ways to play it from a design standpoint, like how they're set up. 
So that gives you like 30 different ways to play the game, like just in that. But since the the supporting skills are so flexible, like even when you're like playing like one type of build, depending on how you like distribute your other skill points, like that'll really affect how you're playing the game too. So I just like really love that level of variety. And I feel like all your decisions and how you spec out your character like matter a lot. And um, I like that. Yeah, the items that you find also also uh, affect your build. I think I was tempted into that stealth build because um, I took Hellrunner 3, which is like that that gives you plus 30% movement speed. And then I found a relic that gives you plus 15. And then I found an AMP that gives you another 10%. So I was running at like 155% movement speed. I was like, well, I got, I got to try this. Let's see if I can just run to the exit and try to <laughs> beat the game that way. That's amazing. Yeah, if there's one thing I know about roguelikes, I, and I, this is universal, like speed is like your best resource because it basically gives you more turns and like turns are your, your economy um, in a turn-based roguelike. So like if you can increase your movement speed or your combat speed, usually that's like going to be better than almost anything else you can do. Yeah, and I took... I took the ghost master trait, so that lets me see like uh, enemies from seven tiles away. I didn't level up enough to see the one that lets you that lets you see the entire map of enemies, but then that lets you see enemies from max range, and from max range, pretty much like nothing can hit you. So that worked out for a pretty long time until I got to Dante Station, where there were like enemies blocking the way, and I didn't have a good way to deal with that. Man, that I feel like that. And this might even exist in the game because they added all these like trials and challenges. But that sounds like almost like a fun challenge run just to like change how the game is played. That reminds me of playing like Stealth and Cogmind or something. Um, I wonder if there's like a. I think you're forced into the combat eventually. So, so we didn't even talk about this, but the big thing that this update actually did was the fourth area has been a placeholder throughout early access, and it got completely overhauled now. So it's a new fourth moon and um, end game boss. Uh, I, I think you're forcing the combat at the end of the game. I'm not 100 percent sure. I haven't gotten to the new it, um, since it got revamped now, but um, maybe just getting through like the first three areas without getting like seen, like doing a pacifist run, almost like seems like a really cool way to play it. Well, I guess you can't go full pacifist because you won't get any skills, but like s- somewhere along the lines of that sounds interesting. We could set up like a fun challenge like that. I want to like play around with that idea. Yeah, the final area is like set up the way that it's set up. It's not like a dungeon like the other. The other levels are more like a dungeon. It's kind of like a gauntlet where you have um, where there's pretty much a straight hallway with like crisscrossing paths, and there are enemies on both sides. So I had a really really hard time dealing with it. I, had, I got through the first, managed to get through the first two levels, but I wasn't nearly strong enough. I had a unique weapon, but obviously I, my build wasn't supporting that, so it wasn't enough for me to get through the final area of the game. Yeah, I was watching um, Blind IRL stream the fourth area, just like the first level. I, I was trying to remain like a little bit unspoiled to leave some surprise, but I just wanted to like, get a taste of the atmosphere and stuff. And there were like all these enemies that I've never seen before, like doing all this stuff I've never seen before. It looked like quite a trip. <laughs> I was scared. Um, I think we've covered this game pretty well. Um, a few more notes I had is uh, the game has explosive barrels, which I think any game where you can shoot a barrel and have it blow up, that's like the one thing in video games that is always satisfying, never gets old. So props to that. And I think that's, there, there, we could talk about this game for a while and I think we already have, but <laughs> oh, yeah. um, I'll, I think we should probably leave it there for now, unless you have anything else you want to, you want to mention. Uh, nope. It's uh, like I said, um, it's like, even if you feel like it's not normally your cup of tea, like I normally play, I told, I talked before, like I normally play fantasy roguelikes, but 
Like this game is really, really tactically solid. Um, kind of like, kind of like Brogue, and kind of in that same, um, not same like genre, but style of play. Yeah, and it's 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 streamlined. Um, well, streamlined can mean a lot of things, but the the runs are shorter and similar to Brogue. So um, I think a lot of people are are getting wins in like two to three hours. I play slow, and I'm like learning the game, and um, I've been playing on streams. So I've been like commentating and stuff, so or like you know kind of explaining things and interacting with people. So my runs have been because they're like six hours, but um, it's on the shorter end. So like, and it's, it's really easy to just like start a new run, like when you die or even after you win or whatever, and I'm get back into it. And I'm, I'm, as I, you know, have less free time <laughs> and um, like want to play more of these roguelikes, I'm really gro- like growing to appreciate these ones that have like, are like really rich on content and strategy and tactics, but are also just like shorter to play. All right, so that's it for Jupiter Hell for now. Uh, actually, one more thing. Um, so the game's been out for about three or four days now, and you know it's full release. Um, by all accounts, the release seems to be going very well. Uh, they had some issues the like on like right at release where like Steam wasn't um, like they weren't like on Steam's radar for some reason. There was like a glitch or something, um, and that's really bad because like indie games could like live or die based on that Uh, but i think that got sorted out and um i checked this morning and the game was well actually i was just looking at something else but the game was at overwhelmingly positive for recent reviews in the last 30 days which is a a really hard mark to hit that's 95 percent positive reviews so one and you can only have one in 20 like bad reviews um which is people if you read through like steam um, reviews like people will leave bad reviews for like the dumbest reasons um and i think a lot of people in the oh, jupiter yeah. health community have been getting a laugh at like what some people have been like what they don't like about the game or whatever and <laughs> behind that laugh there's like a, a tiny tear because it makes it so much harder to like hit this ratio um that matters a lot for visibility and for people to like judge your game like people just look at that review rating and will pass over your steam page or not so um but but it sounds like things are going really well at this point so um, I'm definitely hoping that remains the case. And um, I know the, the dev team is going to do more games based on this engine that they've developed, which is really incredible. Um, the engine is, has been written from scratch in C++, I believe. And that's what most of this dev time has been. Um, about 80% is what they, they said. So the next game they do, um, they don't have to like develop the engine from scratch. So... Um, it will like flip the ratio for the amount of time that they spend on the game versus the engine. And um, that's, I can't wait to see what else they do with this. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. I have to go over there. I've been enjoying the game too much. I have to go over there and do my part. Yeah, definitely um, leave a review. And if people have uh, left the review during early access, you have to go in and um, like update your review to turn it into like a non early access review, which has more weight. So if people are playing the game and um, enjoying it, or just want to support the dev, like definitely leave a review. Um, I'm definitely guilty of not doing that enough on games that I should. I always feel like I need to like write this like amazing like essay review or something, but um, I, I've been getting better at just like doing it to support the game because uh, as with the the visibility on Steam, like these indie games live and die by the reviews themselves. So um, definitely if you have the game or have played it and enjoy it, I'd I'd do that if you can. All right, let's talk about another game um, that me and you have been playing a lot. And 
a warning. This isn't a, a traditional roguelike, but I think it's important. It's not a roguelike at all. <laughs> yeah, it isn't at all. I think it's important to look at what other games are doing. Um, a lot from like a game design perspective, you can, you know, developers can implement things from different genres into their game and we get just better games for that. But also as a player, you can learn strategy and things from experiencing different games. So um, even though this is a roguelikes podcast, we will be talking about different games from time to time. Um, this one might be a bigger aside than I would normally do for a non-roguelike game, but I, B and Luxa Dream have both been playing it a lot and I'm hooked on it lately. So this is what we're going to talk about. So oh, yeah. uh, we're talking about Dominion, the card game. Um, do you, do you, you might be able to explain the game better just for people who don't know what it is. Do you want to give that a, a shot? Sure. Okay. So it's a deck, it's a deck building game. Uh, everyone starts with the same deck and uh, there are, there are 10 different cards that you can draft in the middle and uh, six cards that are always six cards that are always there. You have three money cards and three victory cards. And your goal is to, to uh, draft things into your deck and then make it better than your opponents. And your, your eventual goal is to buy buy more victory cards in your opponents and the thing about victory cards they don't actually do anything for your deck they're just bricks so you want to be able to get your deck to a good spot then you want to buy victory cards quicker than your opponents and once a certain number of victory cards run out then you win it's pretty simple yeah it's a really simple game and honestly like the more i was had been like thinking about this and like preparation to like talk about it today uh like the more parallels the the roguelikes that i've been able to draw and i don't know if i'm just at the point where i've been playing so many roguelikes that like i can draw like i'm just like comparing everything in my life to roguelikes but there are a lot of them um so i think i just picked this up about three weeks ago and my first game was with you and some other people from our nethack clan and i've been wanting to play this for a while because i've been wanting to get into um some more of these like board games and stuff because a lot of them just look like so much fun um, but they're they can be hard to get like groups and stuff together to like actually play them. So I know people on my Discord, uh, the Tone Hack Discord, have been playing Dominion and stuff, and I, I just have always missed out for one reason or another. And I finally got a chance to play it with the the Order of the Cockatrice. That's my NetHack clan. Uh, me and Luxadream are both in it. Uh, we're playing it, and I got a game in, and I, I was hooked pretty early. It was so much fun, and uh, yeah. So like basically roguelikes in a way can be boiled down to like unique situation generators and actually um jason rohrer as a developer that gave a, a good talk basically on that topic in gdc a couple years ago that i can link um but basically roguelikes are procedurally generated and every game is unique that's like all they are is like putting you into unique situations even after like thousands of hours um another type of game that does that is our multiplayer games that's people have thousands of hours in Counter Strike and Overwatch and all these like League of Legends, all these games, and it's because and it's they're not linear. Like you just face with um, unique situations, like game after game after game. And Dominion being a multiplayer game is like that. Um, but another thing, so I think there's a lot of parallels there to roguelikes. Um, and another thing that's cool about the PvP aspect is it's inherently self balancing. And unlike some of these other games that I just mentioned, where you might have a different like character or class or like weapons that you're using, like in Dominion, both players start from the exact same standpoint. So it's like inherently self-balancing. I, I imagine just based on that, any two players of the same skill level will end up with a 50% win rate. Not only that, like whenever you whenever you buy a card, like every other player gets to see like what you drafted, and they get to see what your plan, what your game plan is going into, 
going going into their turn so they can make decisions based on that. And I think that leads to some people drafting too many too many of action cards as they see other people buy, but it's a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, it becomes a it's like a chess match because like you see what they do and you have to react. Well, you don't have to react. You have to make the decision to react to it. Um, and it's often better to just like stick to what you are doing. But there's also things you can like there's attack cards that will like affect what your opponent can do, either like forcing them to like discard cards or putting bad cards into their deck, which affects like how often they'll get their good cards and stuff like that. So if you see your your opponent doing stuff like that, then you you'll have to adjust. Um, but otherwise, you can see what strategy they're going towards by what cards they're getting and how they're playing their hands. And then you can say, wow, they're going to like win before I do. They're like building up too fast, so I need to like readjust what I'm doing. But something that's interesting with that is I- I've noticed that like I'll get into a situation where like my opponent's like doing something better than I am, but I might be playing like a longer term strategy. And it- there's this break point where it's like, will they finish the game before I can win or do I stick to my strategy? Because even though it's a slower start, it'll be faster to finish and I'll win. And it's really hard to make that call. And there's like so much pressure on the line when you're just like seeing your like opponents start like picking up like victory points, which is what you need to win. Um, And something that's interesting about the game is like to get the points to win, you have to like buy these cards that represent those points and put them into your deck. But that's all they do. So they make your deck worse. So most of the time when someone's like picking them up, like they're like winning right away, but they're like diminishing their chance to to finish out. But like once you see someone doing that, it's like, how am I going to catch up if they keep buying them at this rate? But usually they don't. And that that part of the game, it might be the part that I've been enjoying the most is because like this pressure of like, I need to like act or just like have faith in the build you're doing. And it's just been like such a blast. Uh, I have I have a different perspective on that actually. Oh, I think I'd love the, to hear it. I think whenever you look at the board for the first time, you should already know like what your plan is, and that doesn't change like based on what your opponents that what your opponents do. Right? If you're going to build an engine, you have to decide to do that from turn zero. You can't backtrack and say like, "Oh, I'm going to start buying provinces now because my opponent is buying provinces." I think you have you have to commit to that. Yes, yeah, so I'm still the the noob making newbie mistakes, although I'm learning a lot. So I I think. Maybe you don't do that at all and you always stick to your, well, you you don't say always in games like this, but you generally have to stick to what you're doing. But I, I've, I've caught myself straying and saying like, I need to start going and like, like buying these victory cards, but then you end up in like a worse um, situation. So you're, you're probably right. Um, but like, it, it's been such a fun learning experience. And the really cool thing about Dominion, I think, is that you say like how roguelikes are a, unique situation generator and this is re- this is really the same way like in uh, if, if you're playing like magic or pokemon there are always cards that are like, clearly bad or clearly good but on the right board in dominion if you have a card that can normally be very bad can fulfill a very specific niche and allow you to win with that card so no card is really unviable even like the worst five drop in the game i think counting house it lets you pick up Unless you pick up like the lowest value coin from your discard pile, it it does almost nothing in most games. But if you have something to generate a lot of that, you can use that to win the game very easily. Yeah, I'm like continually amazed at like what strategies you're kind of need to adapt to on certain boards. So like I've been playing a lot of the base set, just learn the game, 
And that has, there's a pool of 26 cards and then 10 of those get put on the board. And those are the ones that you use to play the game. Um, and there's like so many iterations of that board that like every game like feels so different most of the time. And like, there's like ideal strategies that you want, like based on like getting certain cards that give you more actions and more cards that give you more uh, uh, draw and stuff like that. But like, I find that you don't often get the the combination of cards that will give you like the perfect quote unquote engine to like just like buy these cards and like win the game like easily. Like usually something's missing and you have to adapt to a card that does it like less perfectly. And trying to figure out how to like make something work from the cards that you're given has been like a really, really fun part of it to me. And it really just is like amazing. Like how like there's 10 out of 26 cards, like you think you'd run into the same thing all the time, but like I haven't played like two games that felt that similar. And to to make another roguelike parallel, this feels a lot like Brogue to me, where the first few levels you find like items that you have to build around. So in Brogue, you'll get you get guaranteed like vaults on the first few floors, and then you get like a choice of like items, and then you basically like you start to plan your run based around those to an extent. And I get the same kind of like strategic like decision making feeling when I'm playing Dominion. Yeah, in Dominion there are what there are you said you said like playing with just the original like 26 cards is a lot so yeah i, I, I counted the cards oh you got them yeah um, I'm, I'm on dominion online right now actually um it says i'm allowing for my games i'm allowing 468 cards so the number of combinations is huge yeah and and you know the base set actually just has like simple quote-unquote boring mechanics <laughs> and like i have all these original games like all the expansion cards like do crazy stuff like and they all introduce like new mechanics and like like the cards just get like way more complex like the base set is just like plus two actions plus two cards like drawed or something like that or like discard a card and do this like whenever because i've been playing when i play with like our, our group or with like luxury dream here uh, we we play with like everything and like those boards are just wild like there's so much stuff you can do and so much interaction like it so once you start using all that like no two games will be remotely similar yeah i wish we we could just like to get better we could just like, go over like boards like again and again and i feel like it would take like more than one game to figure out what the best strategy is for like what some given board is like at our skill level right now oh 100 um and it, it almost I think that's almost like that's a good way to do it because you can replay the same board um pretty easily the way the, the game's set up. And actually I was playing with some of the other guys from the the clan a week or two ago and we played a board and then we ended we ended up just playing the, the board again. We had like one like really new player. Um and like instead of like learning like a whole new board, we we're just like, let's play this one again. Um and that was a lot of fun. And like some people will play the same board like time and time and time again. Um, just learning it because it'll always play out different ways just based on you know how how your cards draw and um, you want to try different strategies and your opponent's doing something different like even the same board will play out like differently uh, which is really cool and i i think in real in real life people that's how people will play the game because and you don't you can't it's harder to randomize in real life right because you don't you're not going to take a deck of 600 not 600, 468 cards and then just shuffle all of them and then deal them out into a board. But in Dominion Online, like that streamlines, streamlines the process a lot. The, the computer selects the cards for you. You start a game, you're, you're done with the game in 15 minutes. There's no shuffling or no shuffling or waiting for your opponents to do anything. Yeah, for sure. And uh, 
To make another Brogue comp, I thought this was really similar to how people in the Brogue community will replay the same seeds to either try something different or try to perfect something that they they did like not as optimally as they'd want to. Or they'll share seeds. Like This was like a really interesting start, um, and you guys should try it out. And people do the same exact thing in the Dominion community, which is just really interesting. Um, I guess the other obvious thing to to talk about here is how um, the roguelike deck builder has become an insanely popular genre, um, mostly owing to Slay the Spire, uh, which has just like, picked up so much popularity over the the last like however many years since its release. It's been out for a while at this point. Yeah, the the, the deck builder roguelikes are among among the few like non traditional roguelikes that I've played. So, mm-hmm. and and I I enjoy them a lot. Um, I didn't have a lot of deck building or like deck game experience. I played like Magic the Gathering and stuff when I was in when I was younger and like in high school and stuff. But I didn't realize it until I started playing like Slay the Spire that like I had no idea how to build a deck or like play a game like this because it the the, the deck as like a a way to randomize things. It's such like an interesting um, like mechanic to build around, and like the player has so much agency and uh, how th- like they draw cards and like the size of their deck and how likely they are to draw the cards they want. And then I love how in those games, like generally you start with bad cards and then like you're forced to take like mediocre cards to like like survive early on. But then like you really just want to have mostly like good cards, which come rarer and like as you play, like by the end of the run. So you like remove cards and add cards and then you have like all these different pressures and like how you do that and like how you have to do that like suboptimally as your deck grows. And um, it's it's, it just like makes me my brain like work in all these like fun like ways and making decisions. And um, it's, it's a lot more enjoyable than just like rolling a dice sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of punishing for trading card game players, isn't it? I go on to like Slay the Spire streams or like games like that sometimes, and I see them. I see like new players looking over it and go like, "Oh, I shouldn't pick this. I should keep my deck small." And then they end up dying to something. They end up dying to something uh, early on in the dungeon because they don't have a lot of good card. They don't have a lot of good cards yet, and in that case, like drafting the somewhat mediocre card would actually help their survival early on. So it's kind of it's kind of a trap that's easy to fall into, and it's something that I had to reprogram. I came from like Pokemon, so I had to reprogram my brain to think about it, think about it that way. And Dominion is also uh, quite similar. If you'd want to talk about that, yeah. And it, well, just on that, like it's it, you're right. It's not intuitive at all um, to like a, a new player to those kinds of games. And like my, my experience is like, all right, I'm going to take a card every time it's offered to me. But then all of a sudden, you're taking like every time you like take something that isn't better than like the average card in your deck you're basically making your deck worse um is like a way you can think about that and then that's the other extreme yeah mm -hmm. um and then you you do the flip side well okay i'm gonna start rejecting these cards that are offered to me and i'm just gonna take the cards that are really good and then my deck's gonna become really good but you start with like really bad cards and you need to like just slightly improve your deck just to survive so you have to take these mediocre cards that you don't want in your deck in the long run but you're necessary in the short term um, and, and yeah, I think you were just about to draw a parallel to how that applies in Dominion because it, it kind of does the same thing. Your, your starting cards suck. And then like you buy like the, the silver, which like gives you access to, to better cards essentially. But like, even by like the end of a Dominion game, like silver is kind of a bad card too. Um, cause there's like cards that give you even like better money. You run into a weird problem in Dominion. If you trash too many of your bad starting cards, 
you have to draft in victory cards at some point, and those victory cards don't do anything. So if your deck is too small, you end up running into those victory cards more and more, and you'll you'll actually brick more easily because of the fact that you trashed those starting coppers, which were more valuable than the cards that you're bringing into your deck later. So it's kind of it's, it's it's a balance. You have to you have to win very early into the game. I think some games end like turn thirteen or turn fourteen, so the games are not long. So you have to figure out. Like how many how many of these cards do I want to get rid of, and um, how long do I want to keep gaining cards for? Yeah, it's it's really nuanced, and just watching like as you build this this deck, this this thing that just it is your like entire game really, and it controls like you know how how you perform and everything. It's it's just like way more interesting than rolling a dice, and I I really enjoy that, and and um, just the cover the terminology i think it's pretty it's pretty clear by context but trashing is the how you remove cards from your deck in dominion and then breaking out would be when you're drawing a lot of cards in each hand that don't do anything so like you can't get anything done on a turn yeah i should have defined those terms i'm i'm sorry but yeah we were talking about removing cards earlier so that's what i was referring to yeah it's it is all good um i guess the other uh comp that i had to these um roguelike deck builders is I think you actually we had like a short discussion on this and on Discord or something recently I think or I might be misremembering but I was kind of talking about how in like Slay the Spire and like Monster Train and these roguelike deck builders like the the endpoint is set and you know how far away it is from you and you know what your deck has to look like by the time you get to that point to win the game so you can kind of like craft your deck to to that and like we're saying you kind of have to like you have these other pressures as you get there. Like you can't just like focus only on that. You need to like be able to survive where you are currently in the game. But there's like a point where your deck is at the point where you could probably win right now. And all you do from there is basically make your deck better. And then you just become like insanely like overpowered or whatever. Um, and there's like a point where, you know, maybe that's wasted time. Like you essentially had won the game by that point and um, you have, still have to play out the rest of the thing. And Dominion, like the game is going to end once one of the players is has a deck good enough to win and actually just like executes on that. And since you have two players playing against each other and, you know, if you assume like a similar skill level or something like you need to finish the games fast, you can't like go with these strategies that are like very, very powerful, but take a while to build up. If there's a weaker strategy that'll win faster on the board. And I, I think that was a, a pretty interesting comparison there. Yeah. So in Slay the Spire, I feel like people make similar mistakes and... Like they're they're pretty um they're pretty defined builds in roguelike deck builders. For example, in Slay the Spire, which some people might be familiar with, the Silent can build like a poison deck where they try to whittle down the enemy over a long period of time, just blocking and trying to trying to overcommit to an engine in Dominion and trying to make your deck like incredibly powerful. It's like trying to build a really powerful poison deck in Slay the Spire from the start. It requires you to pick some very specific cards that might not be like that might be good in the long run but that but in the short run are not are not great and in in dominion if you pick like too many engine cards you can end up with a really powerful engine that just doesn't do anything and just buys one province per turn and gets outsped by someone who is buying money for instance and in slay the spire like if you pick too many poison cards you're probably going to get killed very early on because something of something that counters that so i thought those were like similar mistakes yeah, absolutely. And and in a game like Slay the Spire and then like Monster Train especially, you 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 kind of are required to build a like a quote-unquote engine um to a certain like that meets like a certain threshold by the end of the game. Like you have to have some level of scaling um with your deck to like be able to 
you know, put out big numbers of one form or another, whether you're blocking or attacking with big numbers by the end of the game. Um, because like the bosses and stuff will have big hit points and then like monster train um when you play on like the higher difficulties the last bosses have like four thousand hit points and then plus you're dealing with like waves of monsters that come so that game is like the way i play it like because it gives you a lot of tools to like work with this like you're like basically trying to break the game um and it it captures that that feeling like really well Um, it gives you like a lot of card removal and a lot of opportunities like like add properties to cards, like and augment them to make them like really strong. And I've had like more than one run where I've gotten my deck to a point where once I play like all the cards that can only be played once and they they come out of your deck, that I'm playing the same exact hand every turn because I have the deck to the point where I can do the same thing every turn. I draw all my cards every turn, basically. And that's actually what you end up doing in Dominion a lot if you have a really good engine. Um, but in, in monster train, like that's kind of like the whole game is built around. It's just like breaking the game with this scaling and no dominion game will really allow you to get to quite the point, um, to the absurdity that you can get in some of these, um, these other roguelike deck builders, which don't, um, you don't have like a pressure to end early. Ooh, I don't know. I've gotten to some pretty crazy points in the dominion games before us. They usually, they involve like, there are these very specific cards that give you, that give you victory points without putting bad victory cards into your deck. So that allows you to do some pretty crazy things. I think I've gotten over like 200 victory points in a game against a person before. Oh, that's also okay. I haven't seen that yet, but I, I saw one of those cards in one of the games I played with you guys like a week or two ago um, that did that. And, and my eyes lit up because I was like, <laughs> I can get these victory points without like diluting my deck. And without ending the game early too, because um, when, like as you like remove the as you gain victory points, like they're like limited, and then like the game ends. Like one of the conditions is you take all the provinces, which are like the big victory point card off the board. So like I was like, and I can like build this into an engine where I play all my cards every turn consistently, and I play like this one like multiple times, and then I can just like stack up victory points. Um, and I never quite got there for one reason or another. I don't know what else is going on, on the board, but yeah, I, I did see that. I haven't had a chance to play too many games. Like that was the only one actually where I saw a card like that. Um, but that's really cool to hear that there is some stuff like that. I'm excited to see those boards and and tackle them from that perspective if if it's a worthwhile strategy or even if it's not. I like doing things that don't work um, just to see how they play out and have fun with the game. That's that's my whole philosophy with roguelikes too. Um, that the games get they can get dull if you only play like the the optimal way so like in roguelikes when i find an opportunity to do something weird that like might work i i always go for it uh yeah that's why a lot of uh, streakers uh, don't really i guess a, a lot of people don't really go for high streaks using for using the uh, most optimal like race and roll or like character choice just over and over again because it just wears it just wears on you so much yeah it wasn't one of the top streaks in dcss for a while just like like 26 plus door fighter <laughs> yeah just like the sa- <laughs> you're just like hammering the same exact like species and background like every game just playing the same character and with the same like overall strategy and and obviously it's a roguelike so like the the situations you encounter on the way there are going to make the game very different but also like you're just you really are just like from the beginning like planning to do the same exact thing every run and i yeah re- respect to people who do that and it is really cool to see people get like long streaks and stuff and i actually have my own opinion on streaks how an extent of them are just like variants and stuff that i won't get into on on this but uh well that's a long discussion too (laughs) that that might be a bit of a hot take (laughs) but uh yeah um i i I have to mix things up and um i I, honestly i've the last couple of years i've i've gotten like away from playing roguelikes in a 
competitive way where you're like always trying to win. And I've been having a lot more fun and enjoyability, like losing, doing different things and just like, like making like just, you know, playing games like in different ways and not just playing the optimal strategy. Cause usually there is like a best way to, to play. And, and that that's a lot of fun too. And I play like that a lot too. I still do speed runs in golden crone hotel or, um, try to like win all these games. I still want to like streak every role in net hack at some point, if I get some time, that kind of thing. But, um, they're like, I like, you need both things and yeah, having the variety is definitely a lot of fun. Oh, I think you hit on exactly why I like speed running so much because, there's no there's no pressure to win that one that one specific game and you're taking like huge risks so it's it's like a huge it's a it's a rush compared to the uh, normal gameplay where you're just trying to like minimize where you're just trying to like minimize risks and a lot of times in roguelikes like even in games that try to specifically cut down on it you're doing some pretty tedious you're doing some pretty tedious activities to try and uh, make yourself safer and i think that that does get old after a while yeah so this is a perfect time to talk about speedrunning and roguelikes and in NetHack in particular, I think. Um, so this will be our, our main topic for the episode. Um, so, some wonderful discussions so far. How do we want to start? So I guess the let's give the background here. So the European Speedrunner Assembly, is it's it's like GDQ, Games on Quick. Um, they're a European version of that, a bit smaller, uh, or, or probably not quite as well known, but they... They're still a very established um, speedrunning group. Um, I've had a lot of fun watching uh, their their beat the record for like Mario sixty four and stuff, which is a, a game I liked and used to speedrun and stuff. And myself, um, they do their their marathons, um, what at least twice a year. And so Luxodream actually got into the summer marathon this year to speedrun NetHack, which is just wild because these NetHack has never been anywhere <laughs> yeah these these uh marathons are normally speed running um popular games or like at least games where people can see what's represented on screen and understand like what they're looking at <laughs> <laughs> yeah so this is just like such a a crazy historic event and like it's it's almost unbelievable like and it deserved i mean NetHack's been around for 30 years and this Something like this has never happened. So um, let's let's talk about that. Let's start from from the basics, I guess. Like, how did you get into speedrunning NetHack? Uh, so someone on IRC uh, named Steno actually suggested that I do it, and um, he's like, uh, he'll. I watched a couple of his games, and there weren't any active speedrunners at the time, so it's really it was pretty difficult to get into the game because the only videos on YouTube about it are. Um, there is that uh, Adion, who is the former world record holder. He did a run at Roguelike Celebration, and he also had his world record run. He also had his world record run. So there were those two runs. I don't know if I got too much of those at that point. I think I decided to just kind of start from scratch and then go with that. I, I started in like 2018 or 2019 or something like that. And I played a few runs. I think I got sub two hours pretty quickly which is which is unusual because before before like uh the nethack speedrunning community really got going there were only four there were only uh there were only three players who had a uh, sub 2 hours who had Tariru, one of the best players of all time uh Adion, also one of the best players of all time and scorchgeek so we had those yeah, those three players and i managed to do it on uh, some version of 3.6 
I don't remember. It may, it may have still been in development. I, I think I was running on a hard VOD at the time, but um, I played it mostly in bursts back then. I would try to dig. I would try to dig straight down with my pickaxe and try to get a fast run at any at uh, at the cost of uh, many Valkyries' lives. So I don't know if that was the best way to approach things at first, but that's that was how I did it. Yeah, and I'll just note Scorch Geek, also probably one of the best players of all time. Um, he, he back in like the the Devnil days, I think he was always like toe to toe with Marvin. Really? Wow, I had no idea. But yeah, okay, Scorch Geek, also one of the best <laughs> players of all time. I hadn't heard of him, so I didn't want to. Yeah, a lot of the the net hack like lore is like lost to time. It'd be great to just we, we need like a net hack historian to kind of and, and maybe like someone like John Harris like is this. Um, Who's who's been on talked about NetHack and wrote blogs and stuff about roguelikes, but there, there's like like again NetHack's been around for thirty years. It's still under development at this point. People have been playing it this whole time, and like it's such like a special game to all these people. Like people spend like their lives playing this game legitimately, and there, there's just like so much that has happened in NetHack, and like we we all like so like a lot of the history gets lost. And probably the only reason I know that about Scorch Geek is because I spent a lot of time at one point in my NetHack career. Um, reading through a lot of old RGRN posts, which is the the Usenet group, um, Roguelike Games, uh, NetHack, or whatever. And um, that's where like all the NetHack discussion essentially occurred for a long time on the internet um, in its infancy. So, uh, and I remember like reading through like the DevNull posts and posts from like uh, Marvin and stuff. And, and Scorch Geek was like, he was like competing for like the streaks and the best of 13, like these these high wow. categories um, in those old Devnil tournaments. That is insanely impressive. Yeah, I'm a bit too new of a player to know most, besides like the biggest names in the NetHack. I started in 2016, so 3.6.0 was already out. So I never even saw the, I never even saw like the glory days of NetHack. So yeah, it was kind of amazing to see you, you enter the scene because I remember um, on the. Like this, I guess this is like before the hard fought channel on IRC kind of became the the focal point of NetHack discussion, and um, I think I remember it was Webman did like a pretty insane conduct ascension, like ten conducts or something. I was like, wow, that's like super impressive. I was like, like kind of blown away by it because I haven't seen anything like that um, since I've been like paying attention to NetHack and playing. Like people have done like really impressive conduct stuff, but it was really cool to see that because people weren't really interacting with this at the time. And and then I think you like just did the same thing like it looked like you thought it was interesting and um i saw like like a couple <laughs> really? days later or something like i feel like you shared like a really impressive conduct ascension i don't know if you even remember that no i don't even remember that that was that must have been really early on when i was doing like zen and stuff like that i was pretty bored i guess and yeah i was like who are these like two like new net hack players i've never seen before like doing this like really cool stuff um and it was really cool to see and then um I, th I think you started getting involved in the like the tournaments and and you know the rest is history. Uh, you, you're definitely up there along with these other players we've been talking about as one of the the best players of all time, I'd say. And like no one can argue with your your speed running prowess, um, holding the world record and everything. And like Adion's world record speed run time that held for what over a decade. Um, nine years, I think. Okay, nine years, clo close to a decade. Uh, and would you say that the the speedrunning scene in NetHack was dead um, until recently? From my eyes, I'd say that is accurate. That record was considered unbeatable. Like no one even came close to scratching that. 
I don't think anyone anyone did like under an hour and it was an hour and three minutes. I don't think anyone did like over an, under an hour and thirty minutes or even under. No, no one even did under two hours up until like the point when like I decided to start trying it again. And yeah, and you should let everyone know what your 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 time is now for the world record. Oh, my time is uh, forty nine minutes. And I think it can go much lower than that, actually. But whether I'm willing to put in the work, whether I'm w- I want to put in the work or not, I don't know. I don't know right now. But that's a different story. That's a different story to be talked about later. Yeah, we we should touch on that later because I have similar experiences from speedrunning like Golden Crown Hotel and other roguelikes. But yeah, that that stood for a while. And I was actually looking at the the NetHack scoreboard. It's a website that has just lots of information from people who play on the online servers, which logs all the games. And I think three of the top four um, speedrun times for NetHack now, so it's three people and Adion, were done in like the last month or two. So, so that really like just shows how recent like the speedrunning community has come. And and I, I think this is really all on the shoulders of of Luxadream at this point. You've spent a lot of time um, trying to provide people with the resources to be become better at speedrunning that hack if they should want to and um you've done t- streams on your twitch channel um just like playing fast and talking and answering questions um you make yourself extremely available on irc and discord and all the the net hack channels and and we'll link all these resources and, and things later uh, but you've like really spent a lot of time and put in a lot of effort to bolster this speedrunning community. I think it's really showing between um, just all these records that other players are doing and how well people are doing at the speedrunning and then just like actually getting into a, a big marathon like ESA here. I think that's what like, I think that's what players should be doing. A lot of people, a lot of speedrunners look at a game that they play. Like we were talking about, I'm not going to name names. We were talking about it on the one of the ESA like restreams with someone, and they said like, "Oh, I really want to run this game, but there's only like two or three people who also run it." And I think like at that point, like it becomes like kind of on you to get like good at the game and like to show other people like what your game is and like why you're why you're playing it. Yeah, because it takes a lot of work to to get all the strategies and and. Just even outside of like NetHack and stuff, like all the like the the glitches you might use in like a, a normal kind of speedrun for like a, a typical non roguelike game, and to to expect someone to like figure that out from scratch, like it just doesn't make make sense really. And and obviously someone did at some point, or like people collaborated and, and figured that out. But to be able to share that information to get other people up to that level sooner, and then they can start contributing. Um, and to like figure out other ways to like bring those times down um, is a that's how you get like a community like that to thrive and um, to maintain an active speedrunning community. And these speedrunning communities, a lot of them that I've seen are just like the most wholesome and like some of the the best communities you could you could be around and and see. So it's really great that they exist um, and that people are so passionate about some of these often small or overlooked games. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's never about like the record or the time. It's about like. It's about like people who get together and they love the game and they want to challenge themselves in a new and different way. And that might be through turn count speedrunning. That might be through real-time speedrunning. That might be through conduct. So NetHack, there's a lot of ways to, to challenge yourself and in other roguelikes too. Yeah, and just to be able to like get other people interested in a game and to kind of like have people appreciate it, something that you appreciate <laughs> and to be able to like talk about, like to people about it. Like that's the whole reason this podcast exists right now. Um, and, and why I enjoy doing like all the other like content things that I do. And I think the roguelike community in general is, is just one of the, the best gaming community I've, I've seen. And that's why I 
that's why I'm playing roguelikes so much and I enjoy them so much. The community is like at least half of that appeal to me. Yeah, because whenever you get a win in whatever, if you like beat like Super Mario 64 or you beat like Final Fantasy, like no one's no one's going to congratulate you. But if you go and you beat a roguelike, like people, the community like immediately knows like what kind of an achievement that is for you and what kind of an achievement it was for them. And like everyone will just like, everyone will give you a lot of like positive reinforcement for that. And I think it's amazing. Yeah, it's like everyone's lived through that same struggle and like can appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> We've all suffered equally. <laughs> That's definitely true for NetHack. The amount of information you need to learn about NetHack is crazy and probably impossible if you don't have like a community or like chat backing you up. Like trying to le- trying to learn that is pretty masochistic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I do not recommend anyone um, go and try to learn NetHack just 100% unspoiled on their own. And I don't say that just because I put out a lot of resources for to help people with that. The reason I put those resources out is for the same thing we've been talking about. So more people can get into it and appreciate it without having that hurdle. Yeah. Because the real meat of NetHack is like whenever you get past all that stuff and you can actually figure out how to play the game, play, play the game in a way that's um, not more optimal, but a way that a way that doesn't involve you dying in like the first 10 levels because you didn't know about these mechanics that are not transparent at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, NetHack is kind of poorly designed in that in that way. I think roguelikes in general have gotten a lot better at gotten a lot better at communicating it. But uh, NetHack does have something special about it. I think with all of its um, with all of its crazy interactions and such. It, it's it's a truly unique game, and there's nothing like it. And for aspects better or for worse, like that that exists. And definitely glad to have it either way. Um, so I know. You really like seem to make a breakthrough in the past year or two in, in your speed running. Like I, I just know all of a sudden you you came out and just started like hitting these fast times, um, even though you had been like previously um dabbling and, and doing stuff. So were, were there any like, you know, enlightening like strategic things that, that occurred to you that you started doing? Did you just start putting in more practice and effort? Or how how was that process? Am I gauging that right? That did you like was there like a big spike in in how you were doing and like how did that go? Yeah, in January, I started to play more, and I was like, hmm, what if we could get NetHack into a marathon? That would be really funny, right? So I made an account called Valk GDQ. It has the 366 world record, by the way. And I just started, like, grinding out runs, like, just putting in, put a, just, like, start up a Valkyrie and then, like, try to win. And usually I win around, like, an hour 30. I can do better now. I can do better now. But, like, going through, like, runs without resetting or trying to get good luck or anything like that just helped me handle, like, different situations, like, more effectively and eventually eventually made me a lot better of a player than I was, like, starting out. Starting out a couple years ago, where I would only play sporadically. I would play. I would play until I got lucky at some point. And then if I got... And if I got incredibly lucky to try to go on that run, and a lot of times I would die because I wasn't that great at the game at that point but trying trying like more like mediocre runs that that might not end up with the best time actually ended actually uh, made me a lot better and i think the current world record is pretty representative of that because the current world record does not have very good luck at all like we we actually complete an optional branch in the game that wastes like 5 minutes so i think that record is very beatable but the fact that it is that low now is because of like how much more like I think like how much more skill I've built up over the pa- over the past year of trying to get NetHack into more consistent and playable in a marathon. That's that's awesome. It really has been like 
inspiring <laughs> to to see your improvement. So that's that's a uh, it's been really cool to watch and and kind of just pay attention, be along for the ride like that. I guess we talked about this a bit. I don't know what has it been like to see the NetHack speedrunning community grow. Has it has it has um, as it has been? Um, do you have anything else to say about that? Oh, it's fun to it's fun to talk to people about the game and show I mean, a lot of the fun in NetHack is like showing people showing people things that you found out or things that you know. And there's definitely little nooks and crannies in NetHack that you can go down go down into. And I'm always learning uh, new things uh, about the game. For example, um, a couple of weeks ago, I learned that um, not only do wet towels in NetHack they have damage from gas. But they also prevent potion vapors from affecting you, and that's actually really, really huge. So like, I, I did not know that. Very, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apparently that's true. It's amazing. I've been playing that hack for so long, and I still like learn new things, like almost on a weekly basis. Uh, like this game is incredible. But yeah, being able to be part of a community and like share that, share that with people, like even not in a speedrunning sense, is is a lot of fun. Awesome. Um, so as we had like noted, you put in a lot of effort to make this community grow and to make speedrunning accessible to others. Um, and so you you have a guide up on the wiki. Um, you've been doing the live streams. You actually just got off of a live stream before we started recording with um, Ashpool, um, who's a is, is he a newer player? He, he's been streaming a lot and like over the past year or so and. Um, he, he wanted to learn speed running and, and you were kind of taking a break after the, like playing yourself after the, the marathon. So you just like hopped in and started showing him how to play and he just got a win. Um, you know, it, it was long because it was, I mean, it was fast, like compared to like a normal speed, it was long, like a normal run, but like longer for a speed run because you guys were discussing strategy and stuff. And it was his first attempt, obviously, but that was really cool to see. Do you have anything to say about like the process of you know, providing all these resources and putting things together and making them accessible to people. It was basically impossible for me to start out because looking at the looking at Adion's world record run for it, it explains nothing about why he does what he does. And looking at it now from the perspective of a better player, I still have no idea why he does some of the things in that in that game. Because, like for example, there's a level. There's a level, like the first level of hell, the Valley the valley of the Dead, and that he walks through several times that I still don't know why he did it. But as a new player, this is really, really confusing. So I think, like, setting out a route that someone can do, someone can do every single time, that you can just, you can just load up NetHack, you can find a Valkyrie that has, like, 19 constitution or something, that, and you can just play out the game, boom. That helps out, that helps out people a lot. And, and I've seen a lot of people, like, meet success with that, so I think I did, I think I did a good job there. Yeah, I think you did too. Um, yeah, that's really, yeah, because you basically filled this void of like, this information doesn't exist there, so I, I'm going to provide it. Um, and, and that's kind of an approach I take to a lot of my content as well. Um, I Like when I started playing Brogue, I, I wanted to learn how to get better. And I was like going on YouTube and, and stuff, and there was just like, like hardly any content up there. And so once I learned to get good at Brogue, that's why I started putting content on YouTube. And and now part of like what I do is I want to get, you know, recorded and like well commentated wins of basically as many roguelikes as possible, like archived so that other people can see what they're about and, and learn from them. Um, so, yeah, I know exactly how that goes on, on that side. 
the NetHack wiki is actually like one of the best resources in any roguelike out there. And a lot of the time, I spend some of my time like editing that too. And it's because I feel like the pe- there's no like filter on who can edit that. And even though like it has like some of the best, it has some of the best information, it also ends up with a lot of questionable like strategy material because of that too. Yeah, it's such a thankless job um, updating the, the wiki, and that's a, a good thing to for you to point out. And um, it's really telling that you do like go in there and try and improve it. And there, there's a lot of like strategic advice that has like perforated the NetHack like hive mind or not hive mind, but just like the community and like general strategy, like like just common wisdom, really. And a lot of it comes from like a page on the wiki that like everyone read once when they were learning the game and just assumed that it was the correct thing. And then they start doing it and no one questions it because everyone believes it or no one's like there to like tell them like, well, think about how this affects your, your build or the, you know, this, this action or situation you're in, like people just do it. And uh, once you get to a certain point in, in NetHack, like you can afford to make a lot of mistakes. So um, the the game can be generous in some ways um, to that regard. So you can make these like suboptimal moves and not get punished for it in a way that will make you realize that you're doing something that's that's probably not correct. So to to actually like fix these things or or show people like why like this you know common wisdom isn't the the way you should be approaching this, and especially in a game that's as old as NetHack and. Um, you know, people have been playing for, for so long and getting wins and, you know, how can you tell someone their, this strategy isn't like great when it, <laughs> it, it looks like it's having results. Um, that, that says a lot. Oh man. That's my, that's my battle with, um, I have this, I have this opinion. I don't know if you share it, but that, there's a really, there's an item that's commonly accepted by the NetHack community, the speed boots that are considered one of the best items in the game and people wish for it almost all the time and i think it's not a good wish in like many many situations and i've I've been arguing with people for like months about that and i don't think it'll ever be like accepted that way but i just want to make sure that there's like a contrasting like opinion out there yeah and as long as you have like another opinion you can defend it and then people like the the whole thing is like at a certain, like, when you first start playing one of these games and you need to, like, kind of figure out how the game works, like, you need to just, like, trust advice that you get from other people and from guides and from the the wiki and stuff like that just so you can, like, try things that are, like, in the right direction and see how things play out. At some point, you need to, like, reevaluate um, how you approach things and say, like, why is this um, working and is there anything better that's working? Um, and a, a lot of players may not hit that stage or it might take them a while to hit that stage to think about stuff like that. Um but but yeah, like, especially with like you're trying to like shave like minutes off of like your your times and optimize your strategies and stuff. I, I'm sure you're constantly evaluating like why you're doing things and what how can I improve on these things. So you definitely have like a unique perspective of that. Um, and I know like sometimes I'll just like read through like a a page on the wiki, um, it, despite like how we're talking about it, it has some like things that aren't great. It's actually like super thorough on like the effects of things. And I'll read, like, this item has this effect on it that I haven't used in 10 years. But, like, wait, this will actually solve a problem that I run into. And it might be all of my runs. It might be in 10% of my runs. And I haven't been using it like this. I'm going to start using this item. And that just really, like, required me to go back and, like, try and look at an item in, like, almost as if I've never seen it before. Instead of just looking at an item as a tool that does one thing that I'm used to using it for every run. 
Um, but yeah, I do just want to shout out the NetHack wiki because it is like one of the best written like gaming wikis, like not just roguelikes, like gaming wikis. And it has a lot of information and a lot of people have put a lot of time over a lot of years into like making it what it is. And it is such a fantastic resource for learning a game. And as much like flack as we'll give it in certain situations <laughs> and for certain pages on there, like <laughs> me and Lux to dream will look at pages and like, we'll, we'll send each other like something and be like, does this make sense that you or just like kind of laugh at it just cause like it, it's really just bad advice. Um, even if like players end up not getting punished for it. Um, but it, like if you, if I go and like look at other game wikis, like it's just like miles and miles ahead of where the, a lot of these games are. So a lot of the problem isn't even that it has like too little information, right? It has too much. Like I sent Tone a Katana, uh, uh, like uh, the Katana page once and had like, four or five paragraphs about how to obtain a katana like past the point that you would pass the point that you would like, need one it was really really crazy and it was actually the kind of information that like i love to nerd out on because whoever wrote that page like they dove into the code they saw all the generation probabilities that would like generate a katana whether like a monster spawned with it or like whether it generates in like a chest or like whatever and they knew like the exact probabilities um, like how much resources you had to burn to like create these instances. Cause like in NetHack, you can like kind of create any scenario you want um, with the tools that it has once you get to a certain point. And like they knew exactly like what resources you would need to like on average, like gain a katana or like to what like confidence, like interval and stuff like that. It was like, I honestly like loved like how it was researched and written, but to put that on like a page when someone's just trying to like figure out if this is like a good we weapon <laughs> or like, like what it's useful for. It was just like so much like unnecessary information and, and people will look at that and like not realize that that's just like extra information. They'll think like, Oh, I probably need to like do this to make sure I get a katana late in the game. And no, that is not the case at all. I definitely thought that as a new player, was, as a, someone starting out, like playing playing the samurai role, like four four years ago, um, I would like quit when my katana got rusted because I didn't know how to repair it. And then the wiki said it was so rare and precious. When it turns out, it's just a long sword that has plus one damage. <laughs> it's not that like it's not an impactful change at all. Yeah, I think there was one that I I saw on the like the elven broadsword page. Which is like one of the the better offhand weapons that a lot of roles can like use with um like after trading their skills or whatever and um uh, like it was like telling you like how to get like a plus nine like elven broadsword to like <laughs> to use in your offhand while you're like main handing like a good artifact and it's like this is like an incredible like, you can't you can't enchant a weapon to plus nine so that's why this is like very difficult to do but NetHack gives you tools like through like extreme measures like create one of these. And it almost makes it seem like that's something that you might want to do in the game, but like it is like hours of effort and like tons of like resources and time invested in the game to get like this incredibly marginal advantage that honestly doesn't make a difference in your run. So I, I like, like I said, I love nerding out on stuff like that, but like also you don't want to like make other players think that this actually gives them like is something they should be doing. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, there, there's some like the wiki almost like deserves its own like like history and historian. <laughs> like we've been talking about how like NetHack needs something like that. There, there, there's, there's a so lot of much. There's 
there's so much depth in like a net hack and net hack history. Like I wish like you know how like people do videos on YouTube about like one level on a platformer or something like that, and the video is like 30 minutes long. Mm-hmm. I feel like you could make a video about net hack that's like hours and hours and hours. You just go on and on and on about it, and that's just like a completely untapped market. No one's ever done it. Yeah, I've been looking at like. I don't want to like spoil too much because like I don't know when I'm actually going to do this. So I don't want to tease it, but like I've been looking, like I've had like stuff on my list to do videos of like just exploring like smaller aspects of NetHack because like you can take like one item and talk about it for an hour sometimes. Um, and yeah, there's like a lot of there's a lot of nuance to the game and so much you can do and so weapons or items can be used in like so many different ways that um, and <laughs> NetHack's so special. Like that's like definitely a something we keep like mentioning, but like there's like so much you can do in the game and it's like really just like a wonderful thing to see and you only get that in a game that's been like um like iterated on over 30 years of development it's like whenever you're playing D and then you ask the dm to do something crazy and then you have to, then they have to think of something on the spot to like accommodate like what happens when you do that crazy thing like what happens when you read that scroll of teleportation when you're confused it's like, oh, it might take you like somewhere else. And then like NetHack is that from like a programming perspective, I think. They keep putting in like these like cases on cases about things that, oh, what if this happens? Something something logical should come out of that. And it's just been compounding on that for the past like uh, more than thirty years now. That that's so true. That's a great comparison. But it's like this this like DMs like creativity and improvisation has been like built into the code like from before you even realized that you wanted to do this like weird action (laughs) let's talk about uh so when did you decide that you wanted to get into a marathon and at what point did you like just because of how like inaccessible nethack is to a popular gaming audience like at what point did you actually think it might be possible um when you were like you know submitting entries to get chosen and uh, or to get like into one of these things, and and what like how did you make make your case to these and these submissions that like NetHack was worth showing to an audience at GDQ or ESA? It's uh, from the start. I don't know if I was sure if it was possible or not. I just decided. Well, um, I want to get out there. I want to promote NetHack, so I'm going to go. I'm going to put out the best video that I can, and I'm going to shoot my shot. And whatever happens after that happens. I did not expect to get into. GDQ. I did not get into GDQ. I was a little bit disappointed because that's the first thing I applied to, which is not what normally what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to like apply to like smaller marathons and like work your way up. Shoot for the moon, Luxa Dream. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I tried. You can't say I didn't try. And I expected to get rejected from ESA as well, but it turns out I was accepted, and that was my second. That was my second try too. So that was pretty. I don't want to say lucky. I think um, they saw, I I don't know if they saw something in the video or they like knew something about NetHack, but yeah, I think NetHack's reputation like really helped it, really helped it get in because the people who love NetHack really love NetHack and like the amount of community support that we saw like during that run, despite like some of the shortcomings that might've happened during the run, I think overall made it like successful. And I think that might've shed a more positive light over the game and over roguelikes in general. Yeah, I'd love to have been a fly in the wall in that room when whoever was like coming through those submissions to like and putting together the schedule for ESA, like got to your NetHack speedrun and saw it and like said, yes, we're going to put this in here. Like they <laughs> I, like, were, did they have zero experience in NetHack? And were they just like 
so interested by this, you know, this enigmatic like symbols on the screen because this is an ASCII too, no tiles, like full ASCII (laughs) NetHack (laughs) speedrun for the public. Like it's amazing. It's it's just like wonderful that this like happened. It's it's so amazing. But like, did or did they like have they heard about NetHack? Because I think in like especially like um, people who have been like interested in in gaming or like even just people who are like into like computer science and stuff like that like a lot of people have like heard of nethack and i've heard something about it and especially now that like roguelikes are popular like a lot of people like or i should say like non-traditional roguelike games like action roguelikes and stuff like that are like gaining in popularity like games like spelunky and hades and stuff are like putting a spotlight on this like subgenre of like procedurally generated games um, and a lot of people like want to know about these games and if they just do a little bit of digging to like see where they came from or what else is like that, they'll hear about Rogue and then they'll hear about games like NetHack. And then like NetHack just has this this allure to it with like the stories that people share. And some of them like aren't even like faithfully represented. I feel like like a lot, a lot of the stories I hear about NetHack in hindsight, I'm like, I don't think that can happen in the game like this is embellished a little bit but like it it just has this mythos to it that just like permeates like gaming culture and nerd culture so i i i'd have to expect that whoever like was looking at that probably like heard of nethack and knows how much of like a profound impact it has on like gaming and probably thought it was worth like incorporating that would be my guess but i'd love to like know the story behind that yeah, I don't know how it got in either. It seems like from chatting in the Discord, like people were like, "What is NetHack? Like, do you like?" It's kind of like it's people who even played like retro, super retro games. Like, I think there was like some people playing ZX Spectrum games, which um, they're around the same era as NetHack. Actually, they didn't they didn't know what NetHack was. So, I I think what you said about the mythos of NetHack is what. <laughs> what uh, made people like a little bit attracted to it. And I think it is interesting. If you just listen to the commentary and don't look at the game, you'll think like this is some like insane game going on. Right. Mm-hmm. There's just like so much, there's just like so much of that. There's just like so much of that net hack just buried uh, everywhere. Yeah. I'm so glad we got to share that with, with a broader audience in the public. And and I'm saying we, in that instance, because I don't know if I mentioned this, but I, I joined Lux's dream to do co-commentary for his run um during the the marathon so it was it was on me and him to try and translate this this game to this like casual (laughs) audience like this this wider audience at least and that really had no idea what they were looking at oh man i wonder (laughs) i wonder how that went over i think most of the people in chat were um we're already fans of the game or like knew the game. And I, I think some people who, some people actually picked the game back up after like seeing that speed run. And like for some people like beating this game, you, I think I remember what I was wanting to talk about now, like beating, beating the game of NetHack isn't just like beating any other game. We talked about a bit about this, like about roguelikes in general before, but uh, uh, NetHack is referred to sometimes as the hardest game you will ever play, even though it, I don't think it's the. It is definitely not the most difficult roguelike out there, but it has that. It has that reputation for being like hard and inscrutable, and there are people who have devoted like ten, twenty years of their life to beating it who still haven't beaten it. Yeah, that's something a lot of people know about the game or think they know about the game is that it is difficult or like it, even firsthand. Like a lot of people that were in the chat that day and saw NetHack, they're like, "Wow, I, I played this for fifteen years and never got close to winning." And they're like, now someone's going to beat it in 90 minutes. 
or whatever like it, <laughs> um like just just that just seemed like unbelievable to a lot of people and it was really cool and and you know to be fair uh, what what did you find is the average like win time in a net hack run is it like 16 18 hours or something like that yeah at the november it's a lot higher like if you just look in like nao numbers but like the median ascension time during the november net hack tournament that's full of like experienced players is like 18 hours 30 seconds yeah so even like people who who know net hack like really well like it's amazing but to these people who like think the game's like impossible to win to like see someone like just the idea of someone speed running it, which is generally means you're just going to crush the game, you know, is like just really something else. Uh, I don't know if we touched on this, but what was your reaction and how did it feel like when you actually got accepted? Because like you weren't expecting it at all, I know. And, and that just must have been so cool. <laughs> I had already given it up. I think I was I was not looking at the announcements and I was just like doing my normal like Sunday stream. <laughs> and uh, one of my viewers came in to tell me that I had actually done it. And yeah, I, I, my mind just immediately went to like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to practice. I'm going to have to practice so much for this. And I did. I did. I put in I put in all that work and I hope it I hope it ended up paying off. I think it did. I think it did um, to enough people and that it was it was great. So. You got accepted. What did you do after that? Because now you had like a deadline where you were going to have to be in front of an audience of thousands of people who have never seen NetHack before. You're going to have to speed run a non-marathon safe game. Like it's very easy to die in NetHack um, and like do it while explaining the game to these people. Like what was that process like from that point? Like what's the first thing you did and like how'd you get to the event itself? One of the things that I really wanted to do was like, for myself and like for like the NetHack community in general, like normally games like these will have like things. I think like the Dark Souls run um, had like one of their items that was RNG based. They had it like cheated in at some point, and that's like totally normal for speedrunning marathons. But I wanted to get this like as legitimate as possible to try and like make it through the game without any backup saves, and to only use backup saves. This was like the only thing that I could do to keep the show going. So I, I put in, like, lots of practice. I think I ascended, like, 34 or 35 times in the lead-up to um, in the lead up to the marathon itself. It's not, it's not a lot, but I put, in, I put in a lot of time into that. That doesn't count all the times that I died and made mistakes. And, and like, overall, like, went, went over time and had to quit and things like that. But I wanted to try to make this an experience for, like, NetHack players to look at this and go, like, oh, man, he just ascended in an hour and a half or however long that it took. Or like not like oh well he just like cheated he just like uh, cheated and loaded a save or something like that so I knew I think I had the skill to do it and I I did I did my best when it came to the event awesome and it, it seems to have paid off because uh, spoiler but he he did it he got an ascension during the event um, and let's talk about that how how was the event itself how how did it go um, you want to talk about the run um, the reception the um, any aspects of like what it's like to to deal with the organizers and coordinators at an event like that compared to just playing like you know NetHack at your your computer or at your stream or whatever? Like how how did everything go? It was a lot of pressure. I didn't think that I didn't think I would get so nervous, but I was like antsy. I was like antsy the whole night before, honestly. And uh, when it comes to the when it came to the event, I think I played. I think I played pretty well, aside from a couple of. Aside from a couple of mistakes, and I think people were pretty disappointed to see. Um, I guess we can spoil the run a little bit here. Um, we're gonna 
so that we can talk about it. But like at 15 minutes in, I actually die in Sokoban and then restart the game from the beginning. Like not, I had a Sokoban backup save too. And I decided not to use that. And I decided to restart the game from the beginning at that point, because I wanted, like I said, I wanted a legitimate like net hack Ascension. And, and like, even though like you're not supposed to reset at a marathon, I wanted like my run to be, I wanted my run to be in one piece. And I think a lot of people were really disappointed in that. And I think the mistake there was actually uh, quite small. I don't know if you noticed it, Tom. Like what, what actually happened that what actually happened at 15 minutes there? Yeah, it happened so fast. Um, I, I, it was so hard to like see the messages and see what happened. Um, but as far as I was able to notice, you were working through the, the zoo at the top of Sokoban. So to people who don't know NetHack, um, Sokoban is a branch. And at the top of it, there's a room full of monsters and they're all sleeping. So you can stealth past them and just like walk past them and don't have to like deal with any of them except for the ones that you want to um, fight one by one and get to the prize. There's a, a reward at the end that you really want to get. And so you got to the the other side of the room. There's three doors and one of them has the reward in it. So you opened one of the doors and on the same turn that you opened a door, a monster had generated inside of the door, which isn't common at all. Um, well, it's not super unlikely, but it, it's it's not really supposed to be like that. But it happens like when monsters just get like chosen that tile to spawn. The same turn that you opened the door, the monster got an action and stepped onto the door tile. So they are now diagonally adjacent to you. That monster happened to be, I believe, a freezing sphere. Yes. And you just like... I don't know if you were going to open the next door or whatever. Like you, your reflexes probably didn't even register that that happened, but that was like actually like a really significant thing that you would have wanted to notice because freezing spheres as their attack will explode and make a loud noise and wake up everything on the level. And that's exactly what happened. Like before, like any of us realized what was going on. And I don't think any of us actually realized what happened until we were able to actually like look at the replay later. And then to make things worse, because that probably wasn't a run-ending thing on its own. We were playing a strong, um, you know, character class, so we probably could have used consumables and different tools at our disposal to to get out of that situation. And I'm sorry, I'm using the the royal we here. This is all Luxa Dream, but uh, <laughs> when I when I narrate and comment, I I use we. It's a it's a very um, group activity i feel like like everyone's in this together we were all sitting in our seats at this moment together so um but there was also a yellow light that was um quote-unquote asleep i don't know how a array of light sleeps but they do in that hack was adjacent to Luxa dream and that woke up and i don't know if it was the same turn or if you took like one more action or what but those also explode and that's actually the one i thought woke up the zoo i thought you bumped into it by accident or something but when those um attack you they blind you as well so now we're surrounded by enemies in this area that like everything's supposed to be sleeping and we're supposed to like essentially have zero threats and we are now blinded the only tool at our disposal was to use Elbereth, which you need to engrave on the ground, which you cannot do reliably while blind. Um, and that could have saved us. And that was just out of the question. And I think we're at the point in the game where um, we really didn't have any like useful like resources or escape items identified. So uh, from there, like I think you took like one action. I think you probably did just like you know YOLO on the the Elbereth, and and that was the end. Um, but yeah, that was a, a tense situation. So. Um, yeah, I don't, 
I don't know how well I recounted that, but yeah, what what do you think about how that that series of events went, and um, what what is your takeaway on that? Mm, I think that's what makes roguelikes really difficult to run at these events. Like, even with the uh, backup saves, like you want you want to have a run that's legitimate, and you want to have a run that's good. So you don't you don't want to load from you don't want to load from backup too often or at all. So, like, avoiding these situations would be ideal. But the mistake here was so small. Like, I went through, I had to go through at quarter speed to find that freezing sphere. It's on the, it's on the screen for a fraction of a second. And there was no way that I was reacting to that on time, like, looking at the video in full speed. So, it's just, like, a mistake that's that small. Like, a mistake that's that small can easily, like, end your run. And I think... It's it's comparable to like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna comment on like the quality of like other speedruns, but I can compare it to like one of the other speedruns at the event. There was a Tetris effect speedrun. It's and during a couple of points in that run, like the runner like misplaces a piece somewhere. Like that's pretty normal, right? You expect that to happen under like marathon nerves. Like you can't play through a, you can't play through like a forty minute game perfectly. But like the size of that mistake is actually like the same size of a mistake as like misplacing a piece in Tetris. And then it just cost you, it just cost you, it cost me 15 minutes. It cost me the entire run. Yeah, just the the severity of the consequences of that was was so huge. And and yeah, I don't think, there may not be a, a human on this planet that would have had the reflexes to react to that in, in that <laughs> amount of time. Like it, it was, first of all, just completely unexpected. Like that just doesn't happen, but then except until it does. And so there was just one glyph on the screen for a fraction of a fraction of a second. And then um, if you didn't react to it, boom. Um, and, and something, yeah, it, it's just wild um, that that happened at all. So for that to happen like that and for it to be such a consequential decision, oh, wow, it's apparently thundering out here. So uh, the people listening to this... <laughs> I heard a little bit that. Yeah, you may hear some um, some thunder. Um, I live in a place that gets some a lot of thunderstorms and um, frequent guests on my stream and my videos. Um, I have a very good mic set up, but, uh, so it'll pick up stuff like that from some time. So I don't know if the editing will, will be able to remove that or not. So uh, just an FYI, that was the first big one I heard, but you might hear some thundering for the rest of the show. But yeah, that it, it's hard to even call that a mistake, um, just because of how unlikely and like impossible to to deal with that it would have been, and like really like to have detected that, you would have had to have been playing every turn of the game more cautiously, and that just doesn't coincide with what you have to do to speed run and to like actually play the game quickly. So that's kind of like the comes to the territory of like roguelike speed running, I guess, is that like you can't predict like every situation that'll come, and some of them will just like end your run, and at a certain point, you're almost like you know, brute forcing, like just going through the motions and like hoping that you, the RNG like lines up a bit, not to belittle, like, and bring things down to RNG. There's like more skill involved than RNG, but like those things can still happen. Um, and, and they're not always avoidable, I think. Yeah. And roguelike speedrunning, like it is RNG plays a huge factor. Like I can be, I can be like plus 40 minutes. Like that's not, not 40 seconds, like 40 minutes on my PB at like the same skill that I'm playing like a world record run or something that's like something that's going to be on pace something that's going to be on pace for world record it really is insane like how different runs can be just because you get good items or bad items yeah you can have the same skill level and strategy and then at at that point like when you're trying to execute you need you need a bump from that RNG 
and you know that's just how the game works you know there's there's no getting around that really and and most of these roguelikes and um, again i i don't want to like belittle the the achievements on that because it's it, i think that makes it sound a little worse than it is like oh we just need to get good rng no you need to like be like very extremely good at this game and you have to be executing at a high level and you have to be playing quickly and you're still running into like all these um, unique situations that you have to like improvise in and think through. Um, but even then you need to get like a little bit of luck to to have the fastest time, all of the things considered equal. Um, I have a little bit of an anecdote with that because um, I spent some time uh, speedrunning Golden Crone Hotel which is a lot of a Ooh, much. Tell me more about that. Yeah, it's a it's a simpler game than NetHack, and um, I think when people first started speedrunning it, we were winning in like twenty to thirty minutes, and then I started shaving down the time a bit, um, and I got down to like maybe twelve minutes with like a normal uh, disguise, which are the classes in that game. Now, one of the disguises is the werewolf. And without getting into, or they're actually called a shapeshifter, but they turn into a werewolf in Moonlight. Um, like light is like a, it's a, it's a game about vampires and and darkness and light is like a big mechanic. And then there's also um, like people with like werewolf DNA that can turn into werewolf when like Moonlight hits them. Very good game, highly recommended. Uh, but I was like speedrunning that, and I was having a lot of fun with it. And I, when I speedrun roguelikes, um, I don't always care about getting the fastest time. I know you touched on this earlier. Just like I think just the. The activity of like playing quickly and like making decisions quickly and like getting through a game quickly is um, very enjoyable and satisfying and fun. So with the shapeshifter, there's a strategy where you can abuse the moonlight, which also heals you to fight a boss that um, comes alive in moonlight at the beginning of the game. And then like it gives you a big edge where you can get like a lot of experience. And basically within like the first minute of the game, if you play quickly and get like good branch locations and everything, you can get like to level like seven or eight, like just at the start of the game. And then you can pick up off of that to like snowball and then just like start hitting up the other bosses. Um, and Golden Crown Hotel is a lot like DCSS where you have to go into like branches and get um, their rings in Golden Crown Hotel, but like the rune equivalent in DCSS to get to the end of the game. And then you can win the game. So you basically have to, to win four bosses to, to finish the game. So once you get the first one down, you can start like snowballing and get the other ones down. And when I was like speedrunning this, I would like, I'd like dip into like the, the branch that has like a lot of useful consumables. So I had like more resources to use, um, to, to increase my time. Cause like the resources are really impactful in that game as well. And like just having the right resource can like enable a boss kill in that game. And then that was, it came to the point where that was costing me time. So I had to like stop doing that. And I actually refined the strategy to the point where I was literally like, I had one path and I just had to execute it. And like, I actually got it like down to the point where there was actually like no like alternative decision-making. Like I just had to go from a to B to C to like the end of the game. And like, they might be in like a different order or something, but like, I was just like kind of doing like that same path and like the same strategy and just like needing to get lucky enough to like hit all these things without dying. And at that point, like it just turned into a grind because the thing I like about roguelikes is being put into novel situations and having to think and like, do clever things and like think tactically to get out of these situations and like plan long-term strategy. And like, I completely like removed that from the game. Like I, I did it all up front and like I had like, I'm convinced that like, there's not a faster way to like win this game. Maybe there is, but I don't like at the time I didn't think there was, and I haven't seen a faster one. So I, I just had to execute. And at that point I was just waiting for like better luck essentially. Um, and you, you can win this game in under five minutes with this strategy it actually got nerfed a bit, so wow. I don't think it's that's possible anymore. 
but <laughs> um, you, you could probably win in under three minutes with a strategy with like ideal like RNG, like I, I'm kind of talking about here, but I, I just, That's I just kind of stopped enjoying it as much. So I didn't, I, I still enjoy the game, but just like, I didn't like just grinding through this, like waiting for like the right event to happen because it was just time at that point. Um, like it was with my practice, like it was just like execution, which I could do consistently. And I was just like spending time waiting for RNG. And um, I, I think that's like the hyper extreme end of how um, procedurally like wrote speed running and procedurally generated games um, will pro could probably like always devolve to at some point. Now in NetHack, the reality is that there is so much to do in the game. And like, there's so many things that are procedurally generated that you have to improvise around that the perfect seed where you probably could execute like just one strategy without thinking or deviating or improvising like will not exist in like thousands of years, you know? So like anyone who's actually interested in this just has to like get like good enough RNG and then also like be able to improvise around all the situations that aren't ideal, which you will see many across the run. Um, and I don't know mm. if you agree on that take with it, but that was kind of my experience with Golden Crow Hotel. And it's kind of a, an interesting anecdote. And um, I, I don't, again, I don't, I feel like I share that story sometimes and it kind of belittles like speed running or makes it sound not as appealing. It's still super fun. Um, and I like, I like doing all the other like classes in that game, uh, which can't do that. That's like really one specific instance that like enables this like really um, I like strategy that just works if you can execute on it and get lucky enough. Um, but otherwise like every other class has to like improvise uh, like along with the consumables they get and like the branch orders they get. And that's what I really love about golden crow hotel and roguelikes in general. So that's actually the reason why I like running races so much. I think you you commentated on one of the races I ran with one of well one of the members of the speedrun community, uh, Owie. So in a in a race that you get whatever seed that you get, and then you have to win faster than the other player, and you don't know you don't know where the other player is. You can't employ like some risky strategy of going down into this branch and seeing if you get lucky, and then quitting if you don't get lucky because you simply don't have the time to do that. If someone if someone is better than you and they just win on the worst, they can just win on the worst seed in the time that it takes you to find a better seed. That's a really like, strong argument for that, and it's. For that, for that kind of play, and it's it's my favorite kind of play to be honest. I have, I wish I could run in more races, and that other, more people would race me. I guess that's kind of part of the reason why I'm touching back on an earlier question on why I wanted to, the community to grow because I want I wanted to ha I wanted to have fun with like events like that, and it's too bad that I only got to uh, compete in one. So I guess like applying to speed running events was also like my way of like competing in an event of sorts, but. Yeah, that uh, that race that race type um, running in roguelikes is very very different from the average run that you that you'll have or a run that you're trying to uh, beat the world record with. I think I think trying to beat the world record in NetHack involves getting a wand of wishing on dungeon on the first level. That's a really rare drop. That's um, zero point five percent of wands. So not zero point five percent of items. Zero point five percent of wands. So extremely rare. And um, potentially getting a second one very early on, and I right now the world record is forty nine minutes. And from from what I've been testing in explore mode, I have done the invocation, which is getting all three of the artifacts necessary to open the final level. And that take I've done that in nineteen minutes. So in theory, it is possible to do somewhere below thirty five minutes, possibly below thirty minutes. But the amount of like luck and skill that it would take 
to make a run like that possible is insane. And I really don't know if that's something that I'm up to right now. Yeah, that, that is a, a great point. Um, and I, I've experienced this with the golden crown hotel community too, um, with the races, I've done races with other people there. Um, the developer has hosted like a, uh, like, um, competitions. They, they used to do contests, um, on Halloween and Valentine's day, uh, which are funny and appropriate for the game. And, and they, they did like a, a speed running or like a race at one point. And, and yeah, so the strategy I was just talking about is not viable in a race because it's the first person to win, no matter how many attempts it takes. Um, but basically when I'm doing that, I might only get like one or two viable runs, like an hour or two or three, like depending on, I, I've spent like, you know, whole evenings, like just like grinding out some of these runs sometimes. And again, like the, the winning run is only five minutes. So that's like a lot of thrown out like runs. Um, so that, that just becomes like not viable when you're someone who's just actually playing like conservatively can consistently win in 20 to 30 minutes um, on like their first or second try. Um, so you have to adapt. And I, I, that's kind of where I was hitting on where like playing fast and like, not like beating the world record every time or trying to beat the world record is like what I enjoy in speedrunning sometimes is like actually trying to win like most of the time and just seeing like how fast you can do it and playing within that boundary and like see how fast you can like consistently win. Um, and, and yeah, the race is like really the, a great embodiment of that. Cause that, um, it, it almost goes back to our uh, dominion talk earlier with the PVP like aspect of it. You have to like execute a strategy that you can win like faster than your opponent. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was some criticism about the way that I did the races. Like people, I think what people wanted to see was a race where you just like replay the same seed over and over. But I didn't like, um, I didn't like the uh, metagaming that would result from that. Like, you could walk into a general store, you could pick everything up, and then you could quit. And then, like, all the items would be identified. And, like, people like, no, like, people won't do that. And it would let, like, some, it would let them, like, catch up more often. And I think, and I didn't, I didn't like it for that reason. And I think, like, the way that I did it, like, the better player will still win, like, most, the better player will still win most of the time, like, despite uh, variants. Like, we go through, like, a list of seeds, so after you die, you go to the next seed, etc., etc. So if you play through, like, if you, both players are dying a lot and they play through the early game a lot, they're going to get, like, a pretty similar distribution. If both players don't die at all, then they just play the same seed, so... I don't know what you thought about that. Yeah, so they're playing on a relatively even playing field because they're all playing the same seed. But if someone starts dying and then like they ha- like the two or however many racers have um, different runs on different seeds, and that's when things can get out of sync. And then like how favorable that seed is can really like influence the the way the game is. But that I think that's that's fine because I mean I don't think anyone's playing like to win. Like they're just like enjoying um, the activity and the community. So, um, and you're not going to win them all in a competitive sport. So, um, that just kind of comes with the territory and, and sometimes you do lose due to things that are like outside of your control. Like there, I, I think I remember a race in particular where someone played the first seed so well, but lost because another person lost on the first seed and the second seed was just like stacked with like items and they were able to like, like come out ahead. And it's like, wow. So this other person like may have technically like played the game better because they didn't die but 
you know, there's RNG involved and the the seeds got out of sync and someone else got like some more favorable RNG and they ended up winning. And, you know, it happens and it's a fun story when that happens. And it's it's great for spectator sport as well when stuff like that happens. Like who doesn't love a good comeback, you know? Uh, I think like if the first player who is playing on the worst seed, most of the time, if they if they play well, they should still be able to win. So that that's kind of like my expectation there. Yeah, because there's a lot of time involved in that, and especially some of the formats that you were hosting with, like that weren't like full ascensions and they were like shorter runs and stuff. Um, not losing time could could make a big difference. Uh, speaking of that, so. Um, Back to the event. Um, so you lost a character in Sokoban 15 minutes into the event. Was there a break point where you would have not restarted from a fresh run and had to like resort to a backup save? Or like what? Because 15 minutes is a good chunk of time and a 90 minute clock to send that hack. So what was how did you make that decision? And how confident were you that you would be able to, to finish in the remaining now only 75 minutes on the clock? Uh, so I decided that I would make that decision at 30 minutes. So if like, I can do a run in one hour, it's really, really difficult. And I would have to like, I would have to, I would have to have like decent luck and I would have to shut up throughout the entire run and just not talk about any of it. So I decided, okay, if I die at uh, 30 minutes, then yeah, we're going to load it back up. Okay. So 15 minutes, you're like, no problem. Let's start over. Let's do this thing. Yeah, I knew it was bad, but at the time, like, it just didn't register to me at all. I just, like, felt nothing. <laughs> yeah, because to the crowd and for, like, a speedrun event, like, that feels like a big chunk of time, you know? And, and like, people didn't know, like, how much you padded the estimate and stuff for a, a game that has so much, like, variability to it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, 130 is pretty much, like, unheard of. I think, like, at Adion's event, he even sounded, like... Do you remember what his time was? I think it was something like one fifty-two or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I don't want to guess. I, I think it probably was in like the ninety-minute to two-hour range. Yeah, so I think it's one thirty was doesn't seem like it doesn't see it doesn't seem like a very hittable goal, especially for a game like NetHack. But I was I was confident enough in my skills at that point after dying in fifteen minutes that I would be able to make it back. And I think we at the end we did end up ended up we ended up going over by six minutes or so, which was okay. Like at the at the at the end of the game, like whenever he said that we finished in one thirty six, I actually was like really relieved. Like I had no idea like what time it was that we had finished. I didn't have like I didn't have the timer on. I didn't do I didn't do any of that. All right. Well. I got I got a, a hard hitting question for you. I want to I want to unearth the truth here. Were you just throwing for content? Was I? What do you mean? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> to make because why would I do that? <laughs> you got to make the game exciting, man. <laughs> we, I'm not crazy. We, okay, we're on the that edge of our all, seats. That was all organic. <laughs> and and let's talk about the end of the run actually since since we got since we got here um you did go six minutes over time i think or over estimate um and they allowed that and i I think you you had mentioned how that was probably a testament to like how well received the the run was overall but that that run was like scuffed with like you didn't find any (laughs) enchant armor scrolls so you didn't get to enchant your dragon scales you were wearing like the the terrible ac gray dragon scales instead of like the best armor in the game gray dragon scale mail um you ba- you had the ac of like some of the starting classes basically and like yeah ac i, I i've never <laughs> seen what was your reaction to that i've, I've never <laughs> seen like 
hit points plummeting so much and so frequently in such like mundane normal encounters like you were just like strolling through valley of the, uh, not strolling but you're going through like valley of the dead which is just like dumb zombies and stuff and your like hit points were just dropping from like you were you had around like 200 and it was just dropping to like 30 to 50 like like constantly and you were having to like heal and like get out of these situations and rest and stuff and uh, like that that hit points bar like the visual was just like bouncing up and down like crazy and i think even people who like have no idea what nethack is or what they were looking at could appreciate like how tense and dangerous those moments were oh yeah those like even in normal speed runs you would usually have like minus 10 which is like that's 13 points better. That's 13 points better. And that's going to reduce incoming damage by D10. In this case, we had nothing that reduced incoming damage. And also, enemies would never miss us because of how high level they were compared to like our armor class. So having that AC of 3 is like having an AC of 10, having no armor at all. It's, ba- it's equivalent at that point in the game. Yeah, because they're going to hit you like no matter what at that point. And, and, and yeah, the, the minus 10 is it's like 200% improved. <laughs> over that like (laughs) if you just look in like percentage terms like it's it's insanely um better um let's see the the other moments the the wizard of yendor was extremely threatening because of the and that's a persistent threat at the end of the game like a boss that keeps reappearing as you you try to go on your ascension run um because of that ac in particular um so normally you just deal with them with a wand of death um actually wait before we get to that oh boy <laughs> i do not want to, i kind of don't want to relive that I, I remember the the other wand moment i was trying to recount i got i got them mixed up you had a wand of wishing with one usable charge left like because you can you can get one last charge out of one even when it's empty and you had it in an open inventory and it ended up getting destroyed by a, i believe an energy vortex which there, once you have reflection in that hack there are very few things that you can that will actually destroy your wand like that from your inventory and you, had, I think you had genocided one of them to remove them from the game, and like all the other ones are are pretty easy to avoid. And then this one, it's pretty rare that they actually are able to use the attack that can destroy your wands, and you actually somehow lost that wand of wishing. So like, you, it made a bad situation that had like this this nice out that you were going to take advantage of, and I think you were going to use it like immediately after that, like probably like a minute after that happened, um, and then that happened and. No more Wanda wishing. Oh yeah, we were almost a we were almost a dungeon level one. That was where I think I got distracted. I was going to use it in Gehenna, and then I started talking about it, and then and then I realized that we had to keep moving for some reason, and then I forgot to put ever put it or the wand of death back in the bag. So and then it was just out, and then there was a there was a energy vortex on like the early dungeon, which not where you expect to see that. By the way, you usually see that on like the plane of air. I would have been a lot more careful on the plane of air with that because there are like guaranteed energy vortices, right? But no, this thing just shows up out of nowhere, engulfs me, spits me back out, and then all of my wands are gone. And then at that point, that's a really really bad situation because like to kill the wizard of Yender, you need that wand of death. If you don't have that, he's he's one of the strongest casters in the game. He can clone himself. He will probably kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like losing, getting zapped by an electric attack like that that destroys your rings and wands. Like no matter when that happens, it's always bad. But it was just like particularly brutal here um, at this point in the run, and with like all the stakes on the run, and like how underpowered you were due to the fact that you are just like speed running and don't have the it's not like you could like farm up all the resources you needed you were like already like under resourced to lose something as important as this that you did have uh, was pretty pretty rough 
I was going to say, you did get another one to death at some point, right? No, I didn't have another one. Oh, <laughs> uh, I thought you ran out of charges um, on the plane of fire or something. Oh, no, no, no. I don't. I didn't have anything. If I had something, I would have recharged it. Okay. What would you have used that wish on? What would I have used that wish on? Great question. Um... So the problem was I didn't have any cursed scrolls, and I was like, I was expecting to find them, and Astral was going to be a huge pain without a cockatrice corpse. So I decided, like, okay, I'm going to save this. I'm going to get some genocide scrolls or something, and we're, or, or or even a cockatrice corpse on water, and then we'll figure things out from there. And that ended up not happening. And it's always good to have an extra wish too, because you never know when like something gates in like Demogorgon or something like that. And so I think, like, uh, someone suggested in their Reddit thread, like, oh, you should have, Luxy, you should have just wished for enchant armor. And I, I mean, I could have done, I could have done that. But, like, part of, part of me that's encountered, like, Yinogu and Demogorgon and all these, like, run-ending monsters that can randomly appear just, like, told me to, like, keep, keep, hold on to that wish. And I think, like, if I had been more careful with it, this could have been prevented, obviously. But I don't regret my decision to hold on to that wish. And yeah, I think the last practice run we did, because me and Luxor Dream were practicing with commentary for the event a bit. The last one we did before the event, didn't you get Yunogu and Demogorgon summoned on you? Yeah, so Orcus. So what happened there was Orcus, uh, one of the demon lords, he level teleported somewhere that forced me to waste a wish on the item that I would have gotten off of his corpse. So and then on my way up, I find him. On the last level, of, on the last level of hell that I have to walk through, I start fighting him. He summons the most powerful demon lord in the game. I manage to kill both of them, and then as I'm on my way up, I get, I get forced back down again by the mysterious force. I come back up, and then summon nasties spawns the other remaining demon lord, who I also manage to escape. And then I dig down, and then I'm killed by the demons that he, the normal demons that he summoned. Yeah, like, this is another one of the things I love about NetHack. Like, the the things that can happen, and in roguelikes in general, like, and and it's, like, terrible. It's, like, why is this happening to me? And, like, this is, like, (laughs) to a certain point, you're, like, this is, like, so, like, unlucky, and, like, it shouldn't even be fun. But, like, as you play more of these games, like, those are the situations that I love the most, is, like, trying to figure out how to get out of these, like, really rare and difficult situations. And yeah, so like throughout the rest of the run, um, when the Wizard of Yendor showed up again on the plane of fire, I thought that was the end of the run, but somehow you managed to kill him even before he teleported away, I think. Uh, he doesn't teleport away on the planes. There's no like upstairs for him to teleport to, so he'll stick. Okay, I usually go through the planes so fast that I don't see him. For some reason, I thought maybe, um, I think some covetous monsters like keep their distance even when there's not a, an exit. I thought maybe that was the case. So, okay, so that wasn't that bad then. Uh, it was that bad because he could have cloned himself and I would not have been able to deal with that. Or he could have summoned nasties that would quite easily have killed me with my three AC and all. Right. So he, he could have died easily, but in those in those turns, um, he could have done a lot of terrible things. Um, Plane of Fire noted um, notorious for getting into some of nasty storms as well. Not that I think you would have gotten into that because you didn't genocide many monsters. But um, yeah, anytime we saw the Wizard of Yendor was definitely... A, dangerous dangerous situation yeah so he spent like two of his turns casting i think he hasted himself or did something like that and he cast cybolt a couple times and then once he got to low health he read a scroll of create monster and then i was able to kill him so he never did anything 
he never did anything impactful, which is great. <laughs> Usually it does, the fights with him don't end up like that, especially with like the weaker weapon that I had. Like if I had like your average like ascension kit, as they call it, which is like the equipment that a normal player would have at that point, then yeah, just beating him to death would be no problem. Yeah, not not on a, a particularly low resource speed run. Um, and then that was one of the last dangerous situations I remember before Astral. So once you got to the Astral plane, the last level of the game, um, you mentioned how it had been nice to have a Cockatrice Corpse for Astral. And spoiler, I think that was very true. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you want to recount Astral at all? I I, I remember, um, I don't remember which rider you took on first, Famine probably, because I think you ate Famine. to prep for that. But I, they like respawned like immediately because that's something they do, but usually you can like leave the area and like you don't have to encounter them again unless you have to backtrack or you start like doing like playing really slowly. But they like respawn like immediately before you can get through like the choke point that was like like the bottleneck that was like you know full of monsters, and then you got like surrounded by enemies because um, of that dumb ant spell. Really, <laughs> it's in a normal run like like these priests are summoning ants and it's like a joke. Like you just like step on them and crush and like walk to the altar and like win the game. But like these ants are like blocking your path while you're also surrounded by like all these angels and um, priests and stuff. And like that was another point where like I don't know what your odds of surviving at that point was, but I I knew there was a very 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 real chance that that was the end of the run. Um, but you did manage to escape that. So how, in your recollection or like how how did you think Astral went? So I fought down Famine somehow. I don't, I don't know how that happened really because um, usually like Famine has this, uh, Famine has a hunger inducing attack obviously, but if the first one connects then the second one stuns you and that's arguably worse than the hunger because that makes you move in random directions. And if that happened, I would have to waste a turn like curing that stun instead of attacking him. Like there are ways to attack him without um, using like omnidirectional attacks, like snapping a wand of death or a wand of magic missile, but I didn't have those resources on me, obviously. So like I would have to cure that, and then he could just reapply it, and then I would have to cure that, and that just repeats until I die. That was definitely a possibility there, but that didn't happen for some reason, so he just went down, and then he went down the second time as well. I wasn't too worried about the famine attack, because I was almost satiated from all the tripe rations that I ate before that. But yeah, going into there, I decided to take a little bit of a gamble. I thought like the priest couldn't see, the priest can't see invisible and I was invisible. So I decided like maybe like they'll path a little differently and maybe they'll leave a gap for me to run through. But it turns out like one of them summoned, so one of them summoned ants on me and that's when things started to go bad. And I was at like half health. I still had my life savings. So I blew my bugle, I blew on my bugle that scared the ants, but not the priests or the angels. And that ended up making like, that ended up making room for me to escape like at the corridor on the bottom with about half of my health. So would you say you can owe uh, your victory on your ascent on Astral to your bugle? <laughs> uh, the entire run would not have been possible without the bugle. You know that. Bugle time, baby. This is a pro bugles podcast. So anyone who knows, uh, yeah, <laughs> has tuned in any of my other NetHack uh, channel content. Yeah, the bugle is like one of the most, is unironically one of the most powerful items in the game. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of hilarious, and, and you know what's funny is what so just like the brief like background on that to not just like have inside jokes here is like I at some point on stream I I was playing NetHack like years ago and I just got extremely excited to find a bugle and people in like the 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 chat were like what is this guy so excited about (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and then it just turned into this like huge meme like like people like clipped it and then like like people have been talking about bugles like ever since and and that was even before they got buffed i think i was just happy to have a way to get through the castle because i didn't have anything at that point and then the bugle is one of the more common ways to do that because um barracks can generate um pretty uh commonly in the lower depths of the the top half of the dungeon before you get there so you can often like if you don't find another instrument to to deal with the castle which is one of the better tools to get in uh, i know we're talking about a lot of nethack stuff for people who don't know but like i'm just gonna not try to explain all of this but um long story short like i got really excited about a, a mundane bugle and there, it was warranted but um in 3.6 nethack uh, the bugle actually got buffed as like a scare tool which means like you can use it to make enemies like run from you, which is like one of the more powerful things in the game. And since they're relatively like common to get a scare tool, it's just like kind of part of your ascension kit. And you just like know you'll have that at your disposal eventually. Um, and bugles are just like a great, like they're common and a, a great tool for that. So always, always carry your bugle and that hack tip. Never one. There was a silly bug in uh, 3.6 in like all in 3.61 and beyond where um if you play if you play the bugle it ignores all checks for monsters that are supposed to be scared with it so you can scare jubilex you can scare angels with it you can scare the priests on the astral plane with it that's actually like extremely like an insane item <laughs> Yeah and the that I think that got patched the day before your run didn't it it did, and I, I put I pulled in I pulled in that patch. <laughs> yeah, so we uh, Luxidream actually ascended at um, ESA in the allotted time, or I guess just over, but in in the, his slot uh, with on the bugle nerf patch, unheard of. <laughs> Probably the first ascension on the bugle nerf patch. <laughs> Probably, definitely the fastest. <laughs> well, maybe at that point. That's awesome. Um, cool. Yeah. So that that was the run. What a exciting! Like like I said, even I think people who don't know like NetHack like could feel like the the excitement and the danger and like how unlikely that that run was at the end. And man, that was that was must see TV. What a show! <laughs> um, so you know, it's been what a week and a half, about two weeks since the event. Um, what what are your uh, your thoughts on the event? Um, I know we kind of covered a lot of it, but, um, how do you think, you know, afterwards your postmortem thoughts and what do you think about speedrunning in roguelikes and NetHack going forward? Uh, so one thing that a uh, community member, uh, Thick, uh, you might know him from this variant, a uh, Thick Hack, he talked to me like right before the event. He was like, oh, you should just make, you should just make a version of NetHack that saves after every level. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. He's like, well, I would do it. I would do it, but I'm not at home right now. And it's also the day before the event. So I wish that I wish we could have had that conversation a little earlier. And like, even if like, I didn't plan to use any of the backups and I would have like reset before like a certain period of time, it would have been nice to have those, you know, just for, just for uh, safety because like, um, from what uh, other people have told me, like events like GD, large events like GDQ, like especially GDQ, they don't they don't like it whenever you go, they don't like it whenever you go over estimate. I think they'll kill it before you go over estimate. So that's something important to something important to note in the future. Yeah, that's a yeah. So that's like just a way of having like really good backup saves, right? Yeah. So I think like a few years ago, like there was like an Enter the Gungeon run that actually failed twice on a GDQ. So I think like 
I think you need some kind of failsafe against that, especially because anything and everything can go wrong, as you can see on the run that we presented that day. Yeah, and it's it's like kind of I don't want to say rare, but the the staff for these events are definitely they'll think twice before accepting a quote unquote non marathon safe game, um, like a lot of these roguelikes and like non traditional roguelikes. So they were taking a big risk for accepting uh, my game and accepting uh, NetHack in general. NetHack isn't my game, sorry. <laughs> your your run, your submission. Um, it, it was your game that day for sure. Um, yeah, that, it, it's it's almost just like so amazing that 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 happened. Like like you said, you didn't think it was going to happen, and you got accepted. And man, I think everyone in the community is just so happy that it did. It was such a, such an event. In terms of like the money that was raised for the event, I think we, even if it came from only a few people who thank you so much, and yeah, it it was like our the fundraiser for the the NetHack fruit name raised over a thousand dollars, and we had like even more money from donations coming in after that. So that's a pretty significant chunk of the marathon there. And if like every if every single game. If every single game like contributed like that amount of money from the community from their like respective communities, like a ESA would be like two or three times as big as it is right now. So yeah, that was so cool to see. Like the the NetHack community like came out hard and they they represented and and yeah they they rooted you on. They they tried to make the game more accessible in the ways that they could from the the chat room, um, like viewing it and like helping people and explaining the thing. And they were rooting you on and. Uh, you know, there were very few like naysayers, I guess, like people that were like, what is this? I'm out or whatever. Like that, those, that's kind of stuff got drowned out like immediately. It was definitely like a, a huge minority <laughs> of the, the people there. Cause even the people who didn't know NetHack, like had a, like a very favorable response. There were, there were people that, um, like had recognized it. And like, there was like a wave of nostalgia from like people who didn't know that there was a NetHack run going on that, um, like had played the game before knew about it. That kind of went through like, oh my God, NetHack, like, I played this 10 years ago or whatever. And that was really cool to see. And then, but the, the community came out hard and that was really cool to see as well. I, I, like, like we were talking about community um, earlier and the roguelikes community and the NetHack community. Uh, it's just such a, a great community. And it was awesome to, to see everyone come out and support the game. Mm, and um, things that I would, I guess it's something that I would warn like other like Potent- I, I would want this to be like kind of a stepping stone into like more roguelikes entering these marathons and people becoming aware of them because like as someone who came from I came from I don't know if I told you like how I got into roguelikes I actually came I started with rhythm games like I played um, Dance Dance Revolution Beat Mania 2DX and then from there I found Crypt of the Necrodancer and I was like oh that's a roguelike I wonder what other roguelikes there are and that took me to NetHack which is a completely different kind of game and like and then like for me, like NetHack was the only roguelike. There's no other game like NetHack until I realized, well, there are hundreds of hundreds, thousands of games like NetHack. I just like I'd never realized there was this whole world of games. So like I wanted I wanted other people to like I want other people to like see that. And for and this comes at great difficulty because preparing a roguelike for a marathon like this is like incre- it takes an incredible amount of effort in terms of like practice and like making your submission and just like practicing that's like 
there's some people that I saw, there are some people that I saw who only practiced a run for like a week before, or like a few days before the marathon. Like if you're playing a roguelike, you're not going to get away with that. Like the amount of, the amount of skill that you need to like pull off that run, just a successful run is crazy, I think. And that goes for pretty much any roguelike out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you have any other closing thoughts or postmortem thoughts, I should say? Yeah, my sound setup was not great. I think some people were annoyed by the keyboard. Um, there was nothing I could do about that, unfortunately. <laughs> you know what was weird about the sound setup is, like, I think my audio quality was, like, just on my voice, which I'm I'm used to, like, hearing on streams because I do them all the time and I, I, I have to replay them and stuff. Like, I, I see that stuff. It felt like garbage compared to <laughs> like how my streams are i don't know how that happens because i'm using the same microphone and setup so like i don't know where in translation like that just like like got worse um but yeah like i don't know if you're just talking about like in general you just want to improve your setup but i just noticed like even outside of like my setup which i've been using for years and i know what it sounds like and um, i think it achieves like a pretty good like output like listening to myself on that stream it was just like bad audio for some reason uh, I think it was that platform they were using, like OBS.Ninja. That was like the first time they had used it. And this is an online marathon, so this is like a new thing for them. Usually like that marathon is in person. They don't have these kinds of problems. That's an excellent point. It normally is an in-person marathon. So this is online. So this is like, they're pretty established, but a lot of this is like the first thing they've done. So I'll give them that. That stripped me of my OBS filters, the way that they decided to do the sound. That's normally the way that I mask, like, the keyboard tapping noises. Like, unfortunately, I couldn't do anything about it there. And I saw that some people were annoyed by it. But I think I would need some kind of crazy microphone setup in order to get around it with, like, the limitations that were given to me. Yeah, I was concerned that I would get, like, um, like noise bleed into my microphone and stuff um, because I wouldn't have, like, my noise gate that I would normally be using and, and all that stuff. But um, that wasn't a concern. But, but yeah, it... I don't know. Maybe if they they do more remote events, they'll they'll perfect that. I'm sure they will. Um, they probably learned a lot from doing it like this. But um, yeah, that that side was was unfortunate. And there there was some weird um, other technical difficulties. Um, I don't know if they were related to the the hardware and infrastructure, or like not the hardware, but the the software they were using and like how they had things set up. But like um, there were some communication issues where like some of us weren't hearing things, or like the audience weren't hearing things. Or like like things cut out for a bit, like you know, that caused like a little confusion. Um, I don't think in the long run like that really mattered, but there were some things. Uh, I remember like straight from the get go. I think you cut out for a second, and then like came back in, or like my audio cut out, and then like I was like talking, and I was like terrified that I was just like talking over you for like thirty seconds, like at the very beginning of the run, <laughs> and then I like I shut up and probably like overcompensated for a bit just to like see what was going on, and I think we were all just kind of like sitting there and like was someone talking is someone about to talk like what happened um so it was like this this intense like palpable like awkwardness like in the very beginning of the run there were there were moments in the run where you would just like go completely quiet and then i knew you were saying things so i wouldn't say anything and then it would all come out in like a big like they would all, it would all come out and condensed into like 10 seconds so i was like yep i'm glad i didn't say anything there but yeah there were definitely some tech issues like going into Gehenna too I think I don't know if you were talking then but I was like oh well I think tone cut out so I'm going to I'm gonna I'm gonna take commentary from here until he comes back Mm -hmm. and 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 I was like watching it afterwards and there was like a point where like my audio wasn't coming through and I like knew I was talking about something and like you and the 
the handler or whoever, whatever the, the other guy on the staff send that was um, in the channel with us, like also like could hear me. So like, it was like, none of us knew that like the audience couldn't hear us. Like so, some weird stuff like that happened. Um, but you know, it stuff happens. Um, not bad for a first attempt, but, but yeah, I think there, there were some audio issues and little technical things that happened. Uh, so yeah, future runs of NetHack, I think we can do, we can do some things better. I think anti-goal, anti-goal developer of SpliceHack came up with this little, uh, this little patch that lets you see like monsters, what monsters on the screen are. So I think that would be helpful for people watching the game for the first time. Having something like that with like hit dice, with like hit dice attacks and stuff like that, that gives, that gives, that gives them like a baseline to how like dangerous the monsters that we're running past are. Because like you look at that H on the screen, like you don't know how dangerous that is, but it's really something that does 52 damage every round that it can do up to a hundred. So it's, it's actually insane that we just ran past that. So yeah, I saw her her mock-up of that that she shared. Um and I think that's on the NetHack GitHub and under like a an issue or like one of the discussion things on there. Uh, people can probably see that like a pull request for that, but uh, it that looked that was really cool. I'd love to have that on my screen when I'm playing and streaming. Um it's it's like Brogue has that and like Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup have that and it's like really really convenient to to be able to just look at that and see what's around you, especially in a game like NetHack where like one symbol that's like even the same color can like represent like different enemy types and you can spend a lot of time just like far looking and like examining enemies from a distance manually and yeah and finally i think this is the last point i'm gonna make but the run itself um it uses a pretty tanky like melee melee type of character and that doesn't show off a lot of the crazy like corner cases that we can get into for a net hack so i'm still trying to brainstorm about how best to show that off in like the speed running in a speed running sense. And I'd appreciate it if you or anyone else had any ideas on that. Yeah. If, um, if anyone does have any ideas for that, definitely reach out. Uh, we'll share some contact info at the end of the show and also um, in the, the show notes later, but um, I don't have anything on my mind now, but th- there's so much crazy stuff in NetHack to, to show off. So I'm sure there's stuff we could do. And I'm glad during the, the event that you were able to like nurse dance, um, it was absolutely necessary during that run, but it's not something you normally do yeah. during a speed run. Um, and it was cool to like kind of explain what that was and and why it works and just how weird it is. <laughs> Eighteen plus content in your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't expect this ESA, did you? <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess the the second part of that. That question was, um, what what do you think is next for NetHack speedrunning and for you in particular? And um, do you have any other like roguelike or gaming goals like now that you've done this? Uh, like I said, um, the NetHack the NetHack world record is actually is actually quite beatable, and I don't know if I'm going to put in the effort to beat that or not. And I think I think there are definitely there are definitely at least a couple of players who are close enough who are skilled enough to if they put in the time to try and beat that record but it can go it can go quite a bit lower it can go like over 15 minutes lower than that and that's crazy to talk about because at the beginning whenever i started speedrunning the record of one hour and three minutes was considered untouchable by any human being so this was the belief as recent as like two years ago (laughs) yeah so we've come a lot we've come a long way since then 
And I don't, I, I don't mind. Like, it's not like I said. It's not about having. It's not about having the record. It's about having the community. And if it, if someone comes up and beats the record and we're just like smashes the record out of the park, then that's awesome. And I'm really happy. I'd be really happy about that, actually. Yeah, we'd we'd all be celebrating. That'd be actually. I'm sure you want to see it. <laughs> like we all want to. Like I just. Be... I, I want to. I want to see that run. That 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 would be like both an insanely lucky and like really really well played run. Hmm. But yeah, it would take lots of grinding, uh, lots of work that I'm not sure that I really want to put into NetHack right now because um, you can only put so much into a one game, you know? Yep, you, you deserve a break, man. That's why I play so many different games and like I almost like, I hate to say it, but like I've been playing NetHack like once or twice a year, <laughs> like in these tournaments um, and I've been like going too hard on them and almost burning out and then I branch off into other things and um, it, there's so many good games out there though and like in particular like traditional roguelikes like there's so many good ones so I've, I've just been enjoying exploring different things um, as much as I love that. I have you on the team, you know? Just like play however much or however little you want. That's yeah. I, that's what I've always said too. And, and yeah, that's that's what's so great about um, our, our NetHack clan. It's very no pressure and we allow people of all sk- skill levels to participate even on like the main team and uh, we've been we've been like winning like regardless of how competitive like without having like a competitive philosophy you know just everyone having fun and playing their best and like how much they you know feel like they have the time to to play and contribute um during that month of the tournament so i don't i don't know what i'll be doing this november i'll definitely be playing at least a game um but we'll see (laughs) i i might I might play a lot. We'll see. I don't want to make any promises, but I, I do enjoy uh, the November NetHack tournament. Um, in the last two or three years, I've I've played a lot and I've ranked pretty highly in there and had a lot of fun doing it as well. Well, uh, you've been playing NetHack for a lot longer than me, so you can you can speak on you can speak on that more, right? Because you're like, what? How long have you played? Like 15 years now. Uh, I probably started playing in like 2006. So yeah, I probably got my first ascension in like 2006. About. And yep, 15 years or so at this point so it's it's crazy almost half my life um has been associated with NetHack in some way or another or it's been it's been uh part of what i've been doing so yeah but even if i play the game or i don't play the game like i want to stick around i want to stick around for the community like help out help out new players i'll be a, I'll, I'll be around on the roguelix disc i'll be around the roguelix discord is what i'm saying and if there's like another like speed game like roguelike that makes it up to that make that gets submitted at one of these events like DCSS or Cogmind or something like, or if even if you decide to submit Golden Crone Hotel, Tom, like I'll be one hundred percent behind that. Yeah, in a way, you've you've like opened the floodgates for for just the possibility of a traditional roguelike, even a an ASCII one, being in a you know big audience like tournament or a marathon of like you know viewers that have never seen such a thing and are like these games are like traditionally like completely inaccessible and um, by all accounts i don't know on the esa side uh what their takeaway was from it but it seemed like a big success and how they allowed you to go over seemed like a testament to that as we had mentioned before um as far as we can read into that at least but uh, it there are some big speedrunning communities in other games. I know Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup in particular has a, a pretty active community. And um, even these games where there aren't communities, there are active players that are doing amazing things and winning these games quickly. And um, a lot of these games are, they have histories almost 
you know, similar to NetHack. Like a lot of these are old games, but even the new ones are great as well. And I think some of the new ones are even more accessible. <laughs> so like they might even be even better for that. But uh, like people should take note. And even if you're not like a NetHack player, like see if there's a speedrunning community in the game that you are into, or if you can start one and, um, you know, get into it. And, you know, you might be playing at a at gdq in a few years or something like um, anything can happen and and i like the sky is the limit at this point like just you know a couple months ago we didn't think nethack would ever be on a you know a, a popular speedrunning marathon but here we are and anything can happen yeah that's the that's part of the this is probably a bad reason, but that's part of the reason why I picked up Jupiter Hell is because of how fun it looked, how fun it looked, and how satisfying it I thought it would be to play fast. And it turns out it's way more difficult than I anticipated it to be. And I think a fast playthrough on the, one of the higher difficulties by a really skilled player would be something. It would be a sight to see. Yeah, um, I was I was talking to the the developer, and they said five minutes. Someone beat the game on the easy difficulty. I haven't played on easy, but it it might it probably allows for a lot of you know non interest or I don't want to say non interesting, but it, I think if we played at like a, a higher difficulty with like we're like a little bit longer, like it'd be hard to like showcase a game in five minutes. It's almost like an intro, <laughs> it's an introduction to a game. So like playing on a harder difficulty where maybe you had to like like show off like a few more like strategies and things and, and do something that, that could be a great game for it. And that game shows really well. Um, it's 3d, like people can like appreciate it. And then it's also like a gateway into traditional roguelikes and turn-based games. Um, so yeah, that could be a cool one. I'm not sure if that has a speedrunning community now, um, or like how people are doing on like normal, hard, ultra violent difficulty, like all these other difficulties. Um, but that's a, that's an interesting question. I think I want to look into that and I'm curious about it. Yeah, that's why that's part of the reason why I asked like earlier, like what is the intended difficulty for the game? Because I think that would be like the difficulty that the game is balanced around would be probably the best difficulty to speed run and show off, in my opinion. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to find that out. Um I know people in the community and, and the like developer and stuff, I'm sure we could get some some good answers to that and they could probably even like Give, tell us like how you should go about that and stuff I, I think that sounds fun obviously we need to learn the game first but <laughs> <laughs> we're still learning the game absolutely and the game is still changing as we learn it that's another cool thing about roguelikes and that's part of what i was showing off at at uh, esa is that the game is still changing there's there were monsters that i had never seen before prior to playing that day like i pulled in the patch like the day before for those gold dragons yeah that was so cool to to see them on screen for the first time and, and and yeah, we didn't mention it during the Jupiter Hell talk, but uh, it, it's it's in full release, but it's going to continue to be developed for at least a year or two. So um, there's there's a lot more content planned for that, and yeah, that's that's just how roguelikes are, man. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any advice or resources to share with people who are getting into speedrunning? I guess we talked about all the stuff you provided before, but like any any succinct like if someone wanted to get into it right now, like what should they do? I guess. Uh, talk to good players. That's what I would do. And if uh, if you're the be- if you're the best player around, then I guess that's like your that's kind of like on you too. Because I like I said before, like there are sometimes when I there are times when I talk to other people and I'm like, oh, no one runs this game, so I'm not going to run it. And I don't think that's the right way to go about it because there are obviously a lot of people who love the game. 
It's just like getting resources together to run it might be difficult. So like reach out to those people, get them, get them to like talk to you about the game. Or like, if you're, if you are that person, like go out and talk to other like newer players about the game who can, who can be, who, who can be join your community and eventually like make it into like a bigger thing. Because like, like you said, like the hack speed running wasn't even, didn't even like exist on the map because of like the, because of the record that was set uh, nine years ago. And uh, we've made it into, we've made it into more of a, more of a community thing now to the point where I think I can get like more, if I wanted to start the races back up, which I thinking of doing actually that I would be able to do it with the players that we have. Yeah. And, and I really can't overstate this. Like in like basically the past year, like Luxa dream has kind of turned like NetHack speedrunning from, just something that didn't exist into something where there's like a lot of active like speedrunners. Um, if you go in like the the channels where the like the IRC bots will like you know tell you how people's runs are going, like you'll see people like speedrunning and playing fast. And and now we have NetHack played at like a, a major like speedrunning marathon all in the course of about a year. So if you need like any more like motivation or just like proof that. Um, you can like start a speedrunning community and build it up and like actually like like get people interested and like ha- just have it be engaging and you know just have people be interested and involved and like you really don't have to look much further than that and we'll go ahead and uh link the any like the resources and like the channels where like you know the good players that Luxstream like mentioned like hang out on like IRC and stuff um and, and like the show notes or something so you guys can find it and, and get into that i'll get like a list from luxa dream or something anything else he wants to share and we'll make sure that is accessible to anyone that is um listening to this and, and thinks that could be a fun thing yeah if you're listening to this and you somehow don't know about the roguelikes discord you should join the roguelikes discord there you'll talk we there's talk about pretty much every roguelike that you can think about so awesome uh you have anything else uh on the event you want to talk about or should we move on Oh, I think um, I think I've covered pretty much everything. Awesome, that was a, a great talk. Um, so, yep, this has uh, been a wonderful talk, and I think it's time to to wrap up. So, Luxa Dream, where can people find you? Um, I guess you already talked the Roguelikes Discord. Um, anything else you want to plug? You should. I'll I'll drop your stream in the in the show notes as well. Um, you usually stream every Sunday, I think. So, and yeah, if you get races set up again, those are always fun to watch like for, for anyone. And it's a great way to get into the game too, because they're like well commentated and stuff. And there's never a bad time to get into a game like NetHack, especially with the community it has. So um, yeah, you want to share any, anything else or plug anything else? No, I don't really, I have a YouTube channel, but it just has like uh, some of the world record runs on it. So it's not, it's not, it's more of an archive than something that I upload to regularly. Although, uh, if I if I find the time, which is not a guarantee and won't happen in the near future, I will try to make that change. But right now, I don't have time for that. Cool. So yeah, you can find Luxa Dream on the Roguelikes Discord, on IRC through the Bridge channels, on his uh, Twitch stream, yep. and um, a bit on YouTube. The YouTube content that he has on his channel is really good if you're into um, NetHack speedrunning because um, it's like the world record like runs that he's set and like uh. beaten in the past. So um, I, I can definitely not- recommend that. It's not commentated yet. I really need to find like the time to put together like a well-edited commentated video of that. And that's not super, that's not incredibly easy. I've made some attempts, I've made some attempts uh, from the time that, um, from the time that that record, those records were set. 
Yeah, I don't know if they'll still be there by the time I this podcast goes up, but um, on your Twitch channel, our our practice runs are are still up on there, and those are commentated like speed runs, and uh, they're we're, we were practicing and and like trying to coordinate and stuff. So there's like some meta discussion, other stuff going on during those. And actually, one I, my voice is missing the entire time, which was hilarious. It's just Luxadream <laughs> talking to himself and like speedrunning the game with like long pauses. <laughs> But um, those, those exist too. And I think we did about four runs uh, the week before the event. So um, if you want commentated runs, you can find that as well. And and watch the, the actual event. That was like extremely fun and like well commentated too. So but yeah, anything on his, his channel, like he's usually playing fast and talking to people. So um, you can definitely find stuff there. Cool. And I am uh, Tone. You can find me on the Tone Hack uh, YouTube and Twitch channels. I stream every Saturday. Um, I usually just upload stream bots on my YouTube right now. Uh, I try to do like unique content when I can, but I'm a little spread thin, especially with this podcast now, which I'm having a lot of fun with and I think will um, consume a lot of my time. And if you want to, you know, give us feedback or questions, I'd love to get you listeners um, involved in the podcast and we can read questions and feedback. So uh, that'll be at tonehack.net slash contact for now. And it'll be a form there that you can fill out and it'll turn into an email and I can, I'll be able to reply to you and like, if I need to, and I can just like, um, you know, read out whatever you have to say on the show, if it's appropriate. And I think that would be a great way to, you know, have people engage with the show more. And this being the first show and I kind of mentioned briefly at the top how I want to, you know, just let this like grow naturally and evolve into something that, you know, the, the roguelike community like enjoys and wants. Um, definitely just give me any feedback and let me know what you guys thought. Um, I think in general, the show will be a lot shorter. I'm, I was usually targeting like 30 to 60 minutes. We're going on like over three hours. I might even split this up into two episodes. I don't know if it'll be a good way to do that. I think we just lay it on them. This is all like recent events. So you'll get a, you'll get a, an epic episode for a, a first drop. I knew this one was going to be long, but man, we went hard on these topics and I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, I couldn't be. Um, any anyone I'd be happier to have on the show with me this time. These are some great discussions, Luxadream. Thank you. And just uh, this is the first episode, so really would help to get people to support the show. And the ways you can do that is if you can rate it or um, and leave a you know feedback on iTunes or wherever you're listening to it, and then also just share it with um, whatever. You know, roguelike communities, gaming communities, friends, anyone who you think will enjoy it, um, whether that's through like Reddit and subreddits or on um, discords or wherever people are sharing stuff like that. Um, I think that is probably word of mouth is like really the the thing for a podcast on such a, a niche topic like this. But um, if people are seem to be enjoying this and are listening to it and are like engaging with us, then um, I'm going to keep doing this because that's what really drives me. And um, all the content I do is just. Um, knowing that people are enjoying it and finding value in it. And I think the podcast is like a really great way to, to reach people. So really looking forward to see how people receive this and how this um, evolves and grows as we go forward. Um, and that's all I've got. So I guess I will see you guys next time. Um, I'll probably try to do another episode in two weeks to a month, um, depending on how this one goes. So um, I'll see you guys then. Uh, you got any final words, Luxa Dream? Nope. Uh, take it easy, guys. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in, and I'll see you all next time on Ascension Run.